to the forge cast my name's alex norton and i'm david pin from big forge blacksmithing yeah we've got him on the, the guy that's been spamming us with questions on the the question <laughs> time I, I thought it's easier to just bring him on the show and then he can ask well all his questions might as well just take over for a week and uh, yeah. then you'll be rid of me well you think you'll be rid of me but it's, it's not gonna happen until all the listeners say, "Oh, bring him back. He was great." Oh, that's Which, not going to happen. Trust me. <laughs> it happens. Let me get. Let me know. All right. So just I know Niels the... Vandenberg. <laughs> oh, he keeps coming back. He's a he's a. Oh, hoot. He, I could have him on every week. Back. Yeah, yeah, every yeah, week. He's Between great. him and Roy Adams, I could just have him on. Every week. <laughs> if you ever so. run out of things to talk about, there you go. That's your lineup for the next five years. That's it. I'll just give him a call. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well. We'll get into the episode after these words from our sponsors. And this week's Forgecast comes at you thanks to Australia's finest purveyor of all things abrasive, Rob at Weber Abrasives. So after the show, check your stocks of grinder belts, hand sanding sheets, needle files and more and restock what you need at webers.net.au. And of course... The fantabulous fellows at Nordic Edge, suppliers of all things knife making. So make sure you go and see them at the Sydney Knife Show this weekend. And until then, restock your knife, knife making needs at their awesome to use website, nordicedge.com.au. And yes, they ship worldwide. They do ship worldwide. I have taken advantage of that for sure. Oh, yeah. Back before, uh, before those Nordic Edge, or I guess back then, Creative Man um, mm. file guides. We're in Canada. I, I got one from, from Australia. And it took a little time to get here, but man, it's a life changer. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the precision those things give you is just second to none. And the fact that the carbide faces won't pop off on you when you if you tighten it too much, it's... Bolted uh, down. Yeah. yeah. the best way to go. I've had mine now for about two years using it as a full-time knife maker, and I still haven't had to replace those faces. It's a test of quality right there. I'm also not particularly gentle with mine. You're supposed to only use them against um, <laughs> aluminium oxide belts uh, or zirconia yeah. belts. I use them against Cubitrons and <laughs> nothing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I keep thinking, oh, that... God, I've scored it. But then I put a like a level across it and a one, two, three block and no daylight. Yeah. <laughs> no. You just got to wipe it with your thumb and the scratch comes right away. Yeah, that's it. Magnificent. Everyone should get one. Get two. Absolutely. That way, if you lose one. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and for those so, Canadian listeners, you can get them from Maritime Knife Supply. I know they're not a sponsor, but uh, no, that's but where you can get them in Canada now as well. That's right. I, I hear they're the place to go for most things in Canada, but um, it's good yeah. to hear they're stocking Nordic Edge gear because they yeah, are. you got to get that world-class stuff on the shelves. Oh, yeah. They stock stuff from all over the place. It's not just Canadian stuff, but they, uh, they're they the supplier of all Canadian stuff. So. There you go. Yeah. Well... This week, I've had a bit of a varied week. I'm still being onslaughted with personal life crises, which I won't bore you with. But uh, I did find time to do something that I've been wanting to do for oh, years. I, I live in one of the most beautiful places on the planet, and I love being outside. And I really wanted a picnic table outside because I like eating 
outside. I like uh, sort of having a charcoal grill going and get some, mm. you know, some chicken breast on there or something like that, or even some kangaroo, yeah. which is a lot of people don't like eating kangaroo, but I say if you don't like kangaroo, try it charcoal grilled. It makes hmm. all of the difference to have it on a charcoal grill. Um, but I could just go and buy one, but that's boring. I, couldn't, I don't want to buy a picnic table because it takes all the fun out of it. So uh, <laughs> I, I made one out of some old pallets, which were destined for the burn pile because that's what they do. When you're in, out in the country, all of the seed and grain and everything is all delivered on pallets, and they literally mm. stick them in a pile behind a shed until the pile gets so big that it's falling over and they think, oh, we better <laughs> burn them. And they'll just smash them up, throw them on a burn pile and burn them. And it's yep. good. It's, it's perfectly fine wood for a lot of projects. So a lot of the structures and shelving and things that I have around here are made with pallets, uh, including mm. park benches and things that I've built. So um, I took an afternoon and spent a few hours and I made a picnic table finally. It's still far too cold and wet outside um, to use it but it's good it'll season it after a while because when you make things out of multiple pallets it kind of looks very mottled different tones mm. of wood and colors and things yeah. but once something's been left in the rain for a couple of months made of wood it all looks the same um, <laughs> it gets a really nice same. patina to it so yeah um, by the time I'm ready to use it it should be perfect um, yeah I saw you making that uh, that earlier this week and it looked uh, it looked fantastic it's, it's really good overbuilt good, it's quick, very sturdy yeah <laughs> and quick work using the chainsaw as well i'm sure rather than using handsaw or something <laughs> oh yeah i mean the most of the time i'll use a circular saw battery operated circular mm -hmm. saw because that's also very quick to process it up yeah. but um some of that pallet wood had been sitting there under compression for quite a while and it was just yeah yeah the circular saw wasn't having it so chainsaw came <laughs> out and it, it did, yeah. did a good job been getting a lot of practice of that lately because uh, we've had mm -hmm. a lot of trees come down in the storms lately. So, hmm. um, but so did you, you know, do much carpentry work in your life, or is this just sort of like a little hobby that you like to do? It's something I've always loved doing. Uh, I've never done it professionally. I've I've never claimed to be good at it. Uh, I, I couldn't I couldn't do proper joinery to save my life. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to making rustic furniture, I'm I just sort of I if I make a plan and a sketch, it comes out terribly. If I just sort of have a vague idea and just make something, it always comes out great. Um, yeah. And every time I make something, people come by the house and they look at it and they go, oh, my God, where'd you get that? And I say, I built it out of pallets. Like, Would you build me one? No, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> Bugger off. For the right price, for the right price, if it's a couple grand, yeah. then. <laughs> I keep having people say, oh, my God, you should go to markets and have park benches mm. and seats and ladders and tables and people would pay good money for them like they probably would but i don't want to do that <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> takes the joy out of it after a while yeah exactly so um yeah i had a lot of fun making it, it was a nice nice to just sort of forget about work for a while and just make something that mm. I, I wanted to make so i'm really yeah. eager now for spring to come around so i can give it a, give it a whirl uh, i miss sure. eating outside under the stars so mm. yeah um, i've been yeah. working when does spring my... start for when uh, does spring start for you down there i think it's September, I believe. September. Okay, not far, not not far. Yeah, off. September. Yeah, hmm. and it's going to hit pretty quick, I reckon, as well. The um, hmm. uh, in Tasmania, I'm not sure if it's the same at other <laughs> extreme ends of the world, but whenever there is a transition into a season, um, the weather goes nuts for hmm. a, like three or four weeks, and during the season. 
you get the expected weather for that season. But then when that transition mm-hmm. happens, wind storms, you know, you're, it'll rain five or six times in the day and then go sunshine, snow will happen. <laughs> it's just, it's sort of like nature's going, ah, it can't I make up its mind. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden it figures out what it needs to do and settles into it. Yeah. And it does that for a few months and then it goes nuts again. So that crazy weather has just started in the last week. Mm. So we know that we're getting close. Yeah. <laughs> um, nice to get it out, out of winter, at least, into something a little warmer. Yeah, autumn is my favorite season of all of the mm. seasons, but spring yeah. is pretty good because uh, yeah. I, I like to look after the local birds and spring always mm. means baby birds. Yes. Um, yeah. And yeah, there's there's a lot of them in my... I've got like an acre of gardens here and they just love mm. flitting around the gardens. So yeah, I've got to put awesome. out all the feeders and, and watering and things like that ready for them. So hmm. should yeah. be fun. Yeah, um, that sounds great. In the knife making world, um, after the success of my Raptor knife series, which uh, I'm still going to keep making the Raptors, but I thought it was because that worked really well and that's based off a template. So it's always the same template, hmm. but a different knife and different version of it each time i wanted to make uh, a new sort of quote unquote production knife that's based off a template Mm -hmm. um and i got given the idea by a friend who breaks everything he owns and he's he's like (laughs) i'm I'm not sure i want to get a knife off you because i'm worried i'd break it (laughs) (laughs) and um his wife's like yeah you'll break it and i'm like all right (laughs) i'm gonna build something that's designed to be thrashed it's not going to be pretty it's going to just be clean and it's going to be built specifically to just withstand abuse Hmm. um and it's named after this guy it's called it's it's called the sully um so that's that's the story behind they're always going to be fairly Hmm. plain looking um but just sort of mean like a nice classy mean workhorse knife and it's a a modern sheep's foot style so there's not even a sharp Hmm. tip that he can snap off (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um and it, and, proof then. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm giving him one of them as a gift nice. just to, because nice. he can he can trial run it but i think i figured i'd do a, a run of them um so yeah. yeah yeah two of the three have already been earmarked and um there will be one left that has already a dibs list is forming for it so it's it's looking mm. promising <laughs> they'll be finished nice. in the next few <laughs> days um and yeah. i'm keen to see how they go especially yeah, yeah, they the look great so far yeah, it's a cool shape. It's going to be it all is, synthetic yeah. materials, which I don't normally do. I, I like my wooden right. handles, but this one's going to be waterproof and, and abuse-proof. Yeah. And so um, I'm putting micarta handles on it. Uh, black, jet nice. black micarta, canvas micarta. Mm. So stone wash finish on it. It's going to be all black and silver and, and cool. Yeah, looking. that's gorgeous. Uh, and I'm also planning out uh, my <clears throat> next online course. Um, this one was actually... Not in the works originally, but after talking with a couple of mates, they really reckon that I should do it. And it's a online course on knife photography, hmm. um, just for your own marketing of knives that you make, but also uh, all the way through from like just social media post knife photography, all the way up to doing the fancy photo edits that you see. Right. Um, so... Uh, I have really, really not had good enough weather to do much filming um, hmm. lately. So it's always been raining and overcast and being outside, you have a good chance of being blown away down the paddock. Yeah. Um, so I've just been planning it out. It's all, I've done all my notes and scripts and things for it. So I'll be starting right. to film that one soon and it should be a, 
should be a cool course to add to the collection. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for sure. You're gonna have uh, could make your own Valhalla Ironworks school in the end. Have all well, the that's the plan. <laughs> the more the more courses I do, the the more thorough the the lesson plan is, and I can start doing bundles and things, and, and yeah. it'll be good. I want to have a complete thing in the end of, of just everything you could possibly want to know, mm. um, and that way people can pick and choose what they want, or some people yeah. could just go through and do the whole thing, do the whole course thing, after yeah. course, yeah. So. Yeah. Um, my song of the week this week is um, I don't think we have any of the cure on the the playlists yet. I don't I, think I, so. I don't recall there being any of the cure. And uh, the cure is a great band. Um, even though it's a little bit of a Rick Ocasek knock knock off, you know. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> um, but I I have a soft spot in my heart for Friday I'm in love by the cure, but mm. I didn't want to add it as my song of the week because one of their other songs is lesser known, but the hook in it, almost everybody recognizes, even though mm. they wouldn't be able to sing along with any of the rest of the song, but they know the right. hook. Um, and I'll leave it to you guys to actually listen to the, the playlist to hear it yourself. And you'll be listening to the song going, I don't recognize this song at all. And then the hook <laughs> will happen and you'll be like, oh, I don't, yeah, that one. Yeah. Uh, the, the song's called The Love Cats. Hmm. Um, it's it's a it's a real bop. It, it's got an ear hmm. that the hook is a, a real earworm that'll live with you for days hmm. after you hear it. So hmm. yes. But what hmm. about you, Those David? Are... Oh yeah, it's been uh, it's been of a bit of bit of a busy week. Um, so I was down uh, in Hamilton, which is about four five hours away from us, uh, for a family wedding on the weekend. Um, so uh, yeah, that was great. And then my parents live about three hours away from that, so we went and visited them on the Monday because it was a holiday Monday here in Ontario. Okay. Uh, so uh, spent the day with them. Uh, drove back overnight um, with uh, with the two girls in the back, so they're three and one or three and almost two, I guess. And so thankfully they slept in on the, on the car ride home for another four hours home. Um, and uh, yeah, so I've only had really Tuesday and Wednesday in the shop so far this week um but uh i have a batch of burden trout knives uh that i'm i have some orders in for uh so i'm working on those right now just little three and a quarter inch um just burden trout knives good for cleaning small game and birds and filleting fish and stuff like that uh with uh walnut handles and brass pins walnut and brass is always a uh, a great it's a combination classic. it's yeah. yeah it's fantastic Old school. yeah yeah so i have uh those they should be well, i want to say they'll finish be finished by the end of the week but i'm doing the glue up tonight so if i can get them finished by tomorrow that would be great um and then i'm working on my first friction folder as well actually i'm following in alex's footsteps here getting yes. into the folder world so yes um <laughs> it's uh, I, I can see it's going to be very addictive um but uh yeah it's i've never one done of a folder us before. one of us <laughs> never done a folder before but it's coming along surprisingly well i a couple months ago was a couple months, something like that. I watched um, a friction folder video by, fortunately, it wasn't by Alex, but it was, um, I think it was Jeremy at Simple Little Life. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a friction folder course, and that's just where I got the, um, I got the bug from there, and uh, got the um, mechanism from there as well. And I've just been playing around. I drew it on the shop floor, about eight times the size as it, as it should be, and. Uh, and did three or four different prototypes in cardboard, and now we're actually onto the real thing. So nice for that. Actually, for everything that I'm using, um, everything that I'm making right now, 
I'm using all steel that I won at Can Iron uh, last year. Cool. So um, the uh, the Burden Trout Knives are ADCRV2. Uh, I got a couple eighth inch um, bars from of that from there. And uh, I got a Damascus package as part of the winning. So it was 1084 and 15 and 20. Uh, but I don't, I, I don't make Damascus. I don't have any way to uh, to do that right now. I mean, I could um, try. And oh, so it's the wire pieces ready. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're just they're just ready to go. They're six inches long by an inch and a half wide. Um, the 1084 was. You, you have a forge thick. though, don't you? I have a forge. It's not the greatest. It's not the most thermally efficient. Um, the uh, the fire brick has started to fall off, so I need to reline it. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't trust myself i'm in such a position right now that i can't I, I don't feel like i can spend money on things that i don't know if they're gonna work or not yeah so i use just all the 1084 for blacksmith knives and um some other regular for sale knives um and the 15 and 20 is what i'm using for these uh these folders so or this folder i should say i have plans to do more of them if this one works well so it's just 16 inch uh 15 and 20 that i'm using cutting it out and uh going from there so we'll see how it goes but uh i, I can already tell that the bug has gotten me yeah for sure absolutely yeah so that was that was my week it's uh not quite over yet it's a thursday morning so i have a couple couple days left in the workshop but... by the time people listen to this your your, your knives might be out yeah, yeah, there we go. I'll, I'll be making four burden trout knives. A couple of them will be for general sale as well. So, Excellent. Um, yeah, if you're interested, hit me up. How about a, uh, a song to add to our song monumental playlist? Yeah, so um, I wanted to do something, well, not necessarily eclectic, but I mean, I listened to the entire Hamilton soundtrack really at least once a week. So I was thinking like that's one song right there on YouTube. We could add the entire Hamilton soundtrack, but I don't think Is that's it because you were down in um, Hamilton. <laughs> it, that's not the reason, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, I listen to soundtracks quite a lot like Hamilton, Prince of Egypt um, around Christmas time. I listen to the white Christmas soundtrack. There's trans Siberian orchestra around Christmas time as well that I wanted to add, but uh, mm-hmm. I ended up just a couple of days ago. I found, um, on Instagram, so it's probably part of TikTok, um, but I don't, I don't venture onto that, that uh, cesspool. There, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, it's actually a cover of a Dua Lipa song, and I don't really like Dua Lipa anyway. But her song "Levitating," okay. um, it's uh, by it's a, like a 1920s cover um, by postmodern jukebox uh, and sweet Meg. Ah, uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So I found that the other day and I've been hooked on postmodern jukebox jukebox ever since. So yeah. Levitating, uh, the Dua Lipa cover by postmodern jukebox is the one that I want to add. The, the 1920s style cover that they did. That's the one. Yeah. And I guess yeah. they've been around for a long time. Cause a lot of their stuff has been posted like eight years ago, nine years ago on YouTube. Oh, but yeah, I just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, didn't there's, find there's, until this there's past some week. magnificent pieces that they've got there, and they've got really talented mm-hmm. people that come and go with that group. Yeah, yeah, it looks like they get uh, just all sorts of different artists on there as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, mm-hmm. we've got a kind of a different guest episode today, lovely listeners. Um, David, as much as he is a, a talented bladesmith and blacksmith in his own right, is not here to really talk about him. Um, <laughs> He had been inundating the show with questions, as l- recent listeners would know, uh, because he has taken the dive. He's he's sacking up, and he's trying to make the well, move, the scary move. <laughs> we, to... should, we should we should preface this by saying I'm 
deciding, debating whether or not <laughs> in the next few weeks I'll have to make the decisions. So it's it that's feels, where we're at right now. When when you're wanting to make the move to take your craft from a hobby that you do to the thing that makes your living entirely, it feels a little bit like standing on the edge of a cliff in a wingsuit. And you've never done it before, and you've seen other people do it, but you're still standing on the edge of a cliff. And even though you're wearing the wingsuit, you don't fully mm-hmm. trust it. And yeah. um, so he has been understandably coming up with a lot of questions. And um, he'd emailed so many questions in and messaged <laughs> on Instagram so many times. Um, I thought, why not get him on the show? And then he can ask as many questions as he wants, um, especially since... Um, while while the fudgery gar is 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 off gallivanting around northern australia um he uh, david here has is has access to me and before i did what i do now i was a behavioral game theorist specializing mm-hmm. in business profitability and so business consulting is kind of my or was my thing for a long time so i thought why not let him corner me for an hour or so um and hit me with as many questions as possible now a couple of things about this one david actually reached out to some other people as well he's like well i've got this opportunity let's get some more questions in there so he's got a, a whole host of questions and you guys at home might be also thinking of doing the same thing and so these questions and answers that come with them might be beneficial to you but also i have not been pre-prepared on any of these questions <laughs> i don't know what's coming uh, every answer that i give you is going to be completely candid um I'm not and I've got to... pages and pages and pages of questions here. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was just before we went um, and started recording, I was telling David, like, normally people who are giving business consulting, uh, they, they are running a business where they need to keep running that business. So it, a lot of what they tell you is is wank, frankly, to be, <laughs> to if, if, excuse my youth parlance. Um <laughs> It, because they need to keep doing it as their job, um, mm. whereas I have no dog in that race at all. <laughs> I've left that <laughs> industry. And in fact, uh, the last uh, three years of my old life I, after I quit my job, I actually stayed mentoring at a local university to business students um, mm. for just as a volunteer and um I, uh, just because I wanted them to have the best start possible and I don't like how universities teach things. So mm. <laughs> I was very <laughs> amazed that the university kept me there for as long as I did because I was so, um, uh, what's the what's contradictive, <laughs> contradictory mm. <laughs> to what they were saying. But I ended up winning mentor of the year uh, before I left, which was really nice. Um, mm. And I still have the, the thing. It's one of the few things I kept with me. Uh, right. So... I thought this is a good opportunity to continue that journey a little bit. Um, <laughs> before we get into David's questions, I'm going to quick fire off. We've got three listener emails, and I thought David might want to pitch in on these as well. Uh, so before we get to the questions about um, turning your craft, whether it be blacksmithing or other, into a business, let's get into these. Now, first question comes from Leon. And he says, hey, Alex and Sam. I'm sure he means David. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. (laughs) I can be Sam for a day. 
He says, it's Leon here. I started this hobby in August last year and have been working hard to upgrade my skills and tools to have a little self-sufficient hobby. The information I've gathered from the both of you individually on your channels and together on the Forgecast have been invaluable to me. I have a question for you, though. I've recently gotten to the stage where I want to etch a logo into the knives or tools that I make. I have ordered the personalizer machine from Gamico, but was wondering if either of you had any tips for this process, specifically in making or getting a hold of the stencils. I live in Perth, pretty close to the fudgery guy himself, and would like to keep my business as local as possible. Perth to Western Australia, uh, to Australia, and then ordering overseas as only a necessity. Thank you for your time in answering my question and for all the work you put into this podcast. It's been a major help for me with my hobby and battling with depression. Kind regards, Leon. That's awesome that you're at the point where you're etching blades that's mm-hmm. it's a it's a moment yes um there are a few companies in australia that will sell you stencils based on designs that you give them uh trend marking is probably one of the most um local ones i can think of uh trendmarking.com.au um however there are alternatives um, there are vinyl cutter machines that you can get, desktop vinyl cutter machines like the Cricut, which is actually spelt C-R-I-C-U-T, um, that will actually, you put sheets of vinyl in them and it will CNC cut them uh, with quite a surprising amount of detail. But hmm. if you need to get further detail, there's a little trick you can do. You can buy a cheap laser engraver. Um, now, a laser, cheap laser engravers will not engrave steel. They just, they just won't. No matter what they tell you in the eBay ads, <laughs> they can't do it. Um, it takes quite a special type of laser setup to do it. But what they can do is burn paint off steel. So you take mm. your knife, spray it with black spray paint, stick it under the, the cheap laser etcher and have it etch your touch mark through the paint and it will burn off the paint with an impressive amount of detail, even with a, a very cheap, like $180 laser engraver. And then you etch the the steel because the paint will act as a resist. Um, and that's a remarkably effective way to do it. Um, yeah. In terms of etchant, I use blue Gatorade. Hmm. It works really I, well. I got myself some of that blue Gatorade the other day because I forgot. Um, yeah. I, I usually just use salt water. Yeah, um, I used to. And uh, like a really, really strong salt water, like take take the seawater and boil it down until you just yeah. have like a paste, basically. Uh-huh. Um, but I got some blue Gatorade, and uh, it's it's not bad. It smells a lot better than the salt water. That's for it sure. smells <laughs> so much better. Yeah, <laughs> especially if you get the sugar free blue Gatorade. Mm. Um, it's it doesn't leave any sticky residue or anything, and it's it's mm. you get one bottle of it, and it's enough to do thousands of knives. <laughs> Um, it doesn't matter if it goes off because you're not drinking it. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, a cheap laser engraver and a bottle of Gatorade and you'll be off. Mm. You'll be yeah. off like a bucket of prawns left in the sun. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't um, use a laser engraver, but um, what I use is this little a little printer here. Uh, Brother um, P-Touch P700. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a laser printer, but you can get stencils for it um, that uh, I don't... Yeah, I'm going to basically say, I don't know if they make these stencils anymore or this, this special kind of tape. I have a whole bunch of it here, so I don't think I'm going to run out anytime soon, but I don't know if they make it anymore. But it's basically a little tape that it, they um, the laser cuts out a little bit, but not it doesn't fully cut through the paper. You just electrical tape the paper to the blade, and you can etch straight through the paper, and it'll just 
that's your design um, and uh, and nothing else. So Excellent. that's what I've been using for uh, for a couple of years now, and it's been really helpful. I heard about it from Chop Knives out in France, mm -hmm. um, and uh, he's been yeah he hates getting questions about it because he posted a YouTube video a couple of years ago. Um, about using it and then every other week oh what was that what's the take that you're supposed to get what's the printer called just go to the youtube video but uh so if yeah, you can't so get it anymore um you're gonna have to raid david's house and steal his tape yes yeah so uh, don't do that um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah if you can find it i think i'm not even gonna say what i think the tape was called um just so that i don't make people buy it but the printer was only 70 bucks um, and what's it called? The like brother. 10, 10 bucks rule. The brother is P Touch P seven hundred. There you uh, go. Printer. If you look that up, I'm sure people can Google the the tape that goes with that. Yeah. P Touch P seven hundred. Yeah, and I'm I'm pretty sure there's a bunch of forums and stuff like that that talk about the type of tape that you're supposed to use for electroetching. So. There yeah. you go. There we go. All a right. couple Hope of nine volt batteries stuck back to back, and you're good to go. Yeah. Hopefully that helps, Leon. Uh, next email comes from Trace, and he says, Several years ago, my wife shared this comical view on several tools. While I understood the nature of most of them, I never really grasped the truth of the comment about hacksaws. She said, A saw whose wobbly blade will never cut exactly where you want it to, and the more you try to correct it, the worse off the cut will be. <laughs> I think I remember that. That was an email going around with funny descriptions of different tools in your workshop. Hmm. Um, he, he says, after using my hacksaw quite a bit recently, I have come to fully appreciate this joke and hate my hacksaw in mm -hmm. the, uh, to the point where I'm going to create a jig that holds a reciprocating saw and turns uh, it into a jerry-rigged chop saw slash bandsaw. Is this just a problem with cheap hacksaws and I need to get a better one or is this part of the nature of the beast? Thank you. Keep up the awesome work. Um, there's, a, there's a bit more to it than that. There's... You know, they say a poor craftsman blames his tools. Um, <laughs> but as we've done an episode on a long time ago, there are tools that you can cheap out on and there are tools that you cannot. Mm. The frame of a hacksaw, you can cheap out on. Um, any old frame will do. You can even make your own frame for a hacksaw and it'll do fine. Mm. Um, so long as it has the ability to tension the blade, you're good. Um, but... It's worth spending a little bit of money on the blades. Lennox makes, I think, some of the best hacksaw blades on the planet, if you ask me. I've tried a few because I, too, had similar problems as you. But mm -hmm. then, me being me, I learned about the why of what happens with hacksaws. And if you look really closely at a hacksaw blade, just like on a bandsaw blade, you'll notice that the kerf of the cutting teeth is ever so slightly wider than the body of the, the blade. And the reason this is, is so that the the cutting channel is, it will, obviously it's so that the, the kerf of the saw can keep going through the, the channel, but it also allows you a slight amount of room to turn the cut, uh, which is why bandsaws can cut around corners. Um, not sharp corners, but um, <laughs> to a certain extent, it can cut curves. And you can do the same thing with a hacksaw. Um, and you need to work to correct, uh, course correct a hacksaw cut as it goes. If you just keep sawing by pushing down, the blade's going to wander all over the place. Uh, but if the blade is tensioned properly on the arm and your technique is correct, you can make incredibly accurate cuts with the, the, a hacksaw. And I know many makers who prefer to use a hacksaw when the accuracy of a cut matters um, mm -hmm. simply for that reason. The thing you have to remember is um, 
the the term for it, the technical term, is inverse kinematics. What's happening is the point at which the teeth are engaging with the work is connected to the saw, which is flexible. And the two points of that saw are connected to your hands, which is one's holding the handle, one's holding the, the front of the saw. Those hands are connected to wrists, which can rotate in all different directions. Those wrists are connected to elbows, which can rotate in all different directions, then shoulders, and then your spine, and then your hips, all the way down to the feet and the ground, which is what you're pushing off to do the saw cuts because uh, you have to be anchored somewhere. All of those compounding joints can add up to like a small bit of wobble in each of them can lead to you drifting all over the place with a saw. Um, and the only way to overcome that is with muscle memory, which is basically done through drilling and practice. Mm. I guarantee you if you were working on a job site where you had to cut the same cut over and over again with a hacksaw, within a month you would be cutting straight lines with a hacksaw, no problem. Mm. Um, it's just that usually people have a hacksaw as a tool that hangs up on the wall of their shed and they use it twice a year. And because of that, they never develop the muscle memory needed to make straight cuts. And funnily enough, it's very similar to um, wood saws trying to, if you're cutting the end off a two by four, try and cut a 90 degree slice, like perfectly mm. perpendicular to the board um, with a, a push saw. Mm. And if you're not used to using a push saw, that's a very difficult thing to do. It's, you sort of think, oh, it's just a gross motor skill thing. It's not. You've mm. got to guide it, and it takes every joint in your body working in unison to be able to do it. Hacksaws mm. are no different. So um, keep practicing and maybe do an exercise. Just grab some, like, you know, 5 mil thick bar that's maybe, you know, 20 mil wide and just put it in a vise, draw a heap of straight lines on it with a, with a Sharpie, and then just cut straight lines and just mm. drill that for an hour. And you do that a couple of times and you'll start getting the feel for it. Hmm. Do yeah, you have I, anything to add to that? No, not really. I mean, I, I can definitely sense or feel his pain because I, I hate hacksaws. The only thing I use my hacksaw for is cutting pins. That's because this, they're David so pins? small. <laughs> David pins. That's the one. <laughs> they're so small that it doesn't matter if you wobble off a little bit because you're going to be through it anyway. Um, I used to use a, a hacksaw because I wanted to keep as much of the wood as possible in my wood blocks. And I used to use a hacksaw for that and I lost so much wood. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just use a regular push saw or wood saw, like handsaw now. And uh, I, I, it, does, it does wobble a little bit, but I find I can get a lot more control with that rather than a hacksaw. Now that could be the blade. Uh, it could be a, a poor quality blade. I don't think I've changed the blade in like a year and a half, two years, mm. something like that. So it could just be incredibly blunt. And that's why it's not pushing or not cutting properly. But uh, yeah, I, I can sense your pain. Like anything, practice makes somewhat perfect, though. Yeah, so. but they're not in, an inherently inaccurate tool. Um, no. It's kind of like, a, you know, it's like saying that, oh, I can't hit a nail in straight with this hammer, so there must be something mm. wrong with the hammer. You don't think that. Yeah. You, 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 your, your first thing is that I suck at using a hammer. That's how mm. you should think about every hand tool, basically. Yeah. Um, except maybe planes. If you get a bad, cheaply made <laughs> plane, it's, it's yeah. no matter how good you are, it's just going to ruin your work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so hopefully that helps, Trace. Keep at it. Uh, and our final email comes from Jonathan. He says, hey, guys, thank you so much for the podcast. I'm just starting out with bladesmithing, and it's so addictive. 
I have a cheap Vivor anvil and an 83-pound hay button anvil my grandpa gave me from the gold rush era of Alaska. Well, that's cool. Oh, yeah. So the interesting thing about the hay button is that it was a paddle wheel boat worker as anvil in Tanana, Alaska. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Circa 1920. I also have a gas forge that I made from a 10-horsepower electric motor housing. That's cool. Mm. He said, your podcast gave me the kick I needed to pursue bladesmithing, so thank you. The question I wanted to ask is this. What kind of steel is the best for making hardy tools? I have access to quite a lot of scrap three-inch round stock from a broken cement mixer shaft. Would this be the right kind of steel? Thank you again for the inspiration, Jonathan. P.S. Sorry for handing you on Instagram, Alex. (laughs) I get about 80 to 100 questions a week on Instagram. That's just from me as well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so I have like a pre-made video that I send people that just politely nudges them to email (laughs) the Forgecast with questions. Uh, Most people do, um, but... Well, some people do, most people don't, mm. um, but it's, yeah, uh, luckily Jonathan was one of the ones who did because that's yeah. interesting, that anvil. Um, yeah. E- email us a photo of it. I'd love to see it. Mm. The um, steel for making hardy tools is, it's a one of those questions where I'm sure you want a simple answer, um, but <laughs> you can make, the, the answer is yes. Whatever steel. <laughs> uh, you can make yeah. hardy tools out of mild steel. It depends on how long mm-hmm. you want it to last for. Yeah. Um, really, the nature of whatever type of hardy tool you're using uh, is going to dictate what kind of performance you want out of it. Like a hot cut, mm-hmm. for example, um, I just make mine out of SUP9, which is um, basically 5160. Um, mm-hmm. Because a, a hot cut hardy tool is going to have to be redressed on the regular anyway. Yeah. So I don't particularly care about it. Um, you could, if you wanted to order something that's a, like an air cooling steel, like H13 or something like that, mm. and then it won't detemper as easily from prolonged exposure to hot materials. But if you're making something like um, a fuller, a spring fuller mm. hardy tool, you don't even need to heat treat that. You could yeah. just get some coil spring um, and just weld it onto a bit of uh, just mild steel for the spring, not even heat treat it, and that thing will last for years mm. because it's not doing the same thing with such a fine point as something like a hot cut hardy. So yeah. um, if the steel is a tough steel, it'll work. Um, but like with all steel, I don't really know what a cement mixer shaft would be made of. It might be like drive axle. Uh, it might just be case hardened mild steel. It might just be mild steel. Um, so do do some spark testing, do some hardness testing, see if it can be hardened at all. Uh, and then depending on what type of hardy tool you want to make with it, it might not even need to be hardened. So um, whatever steel you can get your grubby little hands on, I say go for it <laughs> because make the tool figure out how it's going to fall into your workflow. And if it's not keeping up with what you need it to do, get something tougher. Yeah. And then and you've already made the tool. You have the experience making the tool and you can that's make it right. better. Call it a practice one. You know, yeah. uh, that, that's the cool thing about being a blacksmith is we get to make all our own tools. <laughs> and if it breaks, you make another one. Yeah. Yeah. Three inch round sounds like if you don't have a press or a power hammer, I can that's imagine a lot that's going to be, yeah, it's going to be tough. How big was it? Even if it is just mild steel. (laughs) 
Wait, is it one of those cement mixer trucks? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, oh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I when I first started out, and I still have this hot cut. It's the only hot cut that I use to this day. Um, my wife bought me a whole bunch of axe heads. I didn't have any other steel, so I just squished the uh, the butt end of the axe head to the yep. size of my hardy tool, and that's my hot cut. <laughs> my first anvil so. was tiny, a little 20 kilo anvil, and the hardy tool, a uh, hardy hole was... A really, it's 14 mil square very strange mm. size yeah. so i actually got a, uh, a cold chisel from the hardware store mm. and I, I cut off the head of it and then formed shoulders with an angle grinder yeah. that would slot into the the <laughs> the hardy tool and i used that for like the first couple of years just the end of a yeah. cold chisel as, and it worked fine yeah. even now yeah. i just have the uh the end of a leaf spring that i forged into a blade right so yeah i mean it, whatever works yeah, exactly. So yeah. Um, see what what where it's going. The tool is going to fall into your workflow. If you're just making tools for the sake of making tools, make them out of anything, and then yeah. find out what you use. So you'd be surprised what can keep up. To be honest, mm. as long yeah. as you're not using mild, and even if you are using mild, you know you'd be surprised what some of that can do. Yeah, quick little drift, mild steel is going to do it for you. Yeah. So hopefully that helps, Jonathan. Uh, and now we're on to the uh, the main game. Before we dive into your large list of questions, uh, I hear there's somebody you want to shout out, somebody inspiring. Yeah, yeah. So this is actually, he's, he sent me a couple of messages here, a couple of questions. But um, there's a guy in the UK, um, Jake Cooper, and actually his dad, um, Dave Cooper, David Cooper. Uh, they run a blacksmithing shop out in the UK, and they make gorgeous, gorgeous architectural ironwork. Um, and their work is huge, massive gates and stuff like that. And, uh, I, I got into, or I want to get into, um, some sort of architectural iron work and, uh, and his stuff is what inspired me. So I think Jake is the one, um, I think he's only 17 or 18, but he works with his dad. Um, and, uh, he's the one who runs their Instagram page. Uh, so I reached out to him just, I think I saw one of his penny scrolls. I was trying to learn how to do a penny scroll. Um, and, uh, and he just, yeah, he, Reached, I reached out to him. He reached out back, and uh, we've just been chatting ever since. I just got a care package through from him the other day um, with uh, a whole bunch of Damascus. He um, started doing knife making, but then he found that it was a little too constricting. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't. He didn't have the freedom that he did in blacksmithing. So he made some absolutely gorgeous knives. Um, but now he's just back to to the full time blacksmithing. So all the Damascus that he made, he sent over to me. He sent me through a whole bunch of the wood. Um, that he was going to use. He got into like making hybrid resin handles. So he sent me through a lot of that as well. And then I'm from the UK as well. I was born there. Uh, so he sent me through all sorts of goodies um, from the UK that I miss. So yeah. shout out to Jake Cooper and his dad, David Cooper. They make awesome stuff. And a uh, special shout out to Jake for sending me all sorts of goodies. And how can they people find them on Instagram? Uh, so their main uh, blacksmithing uh, channel or um, profile is D uh, at DC underscore blacksmith. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's their main one. Um, and then Jake is at J Cooper underscore underscore blacksmith. Right. There you go. Everybody go follow. Yeah. Yeah. They're great. Oh, I'm just looking at the, the gates are incredible. They're fantastic. They do all sorts of gold leafing on them as well. Yeah. Damn. Fancy stuff. Yeah. All right. Main event time. All right. So hit me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, 
yeah, I guess uh, where we're at. So I'm debating whether or not to take this business full time. Um, that's, I think, when a lot of people start knife making or blacksmith or really any sort of making and they absolutely fall in love with it. I think you start to not really hate your job, but uh, in my case, I'm not. So I'm currently a teacher, a college professor, um, and it's not what I'm passionate about. And I feel like from my end, that's not fair on the students. If I'm not passionate about teaching, they're not going to necessarily be passionate about learning. Mm. So um, right now I feel like I'm teaching for the summers so that I can do blacksmithing and knife making in the summers. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's fair for the students. So I'm trying to come out of the teaching game and I figure why not try to go into the blacksmithing game. And I think that's where a lot of people go is they say, I'm, I've fallen in love with making this thing. Can I make it a viable business? How do we start? Where's, what's the first thing that we need to do? Do we have to um, basically get ourselves a, almost a full-time workload before quitting our nine to five job and coming into doing it full-time? Do we just quit on the faith that we're then gonna put in all this work and get to a place where we can um, financially live off of this ourselves. Um, so yeah, that's that's where I'm at right now. So I did a whole bunch of calculations. Um, I'm the sole breadwinner of our family. My wife is a stay-at-home mom with our two girls. So I need to bring in enough money to basically live on. After all sorts of business costs and stuff like that, we need to pay rent, we need to pay food, all that fun stuff. So I did a little calculation and the burden trout knives that I'm actually selling right now, um, if I made 10 of those per week, which is, um, which is doable. If I spent five days a week, I could get 10 of those knives out a week. Um, if I did that, um, every day for a whole year, I would make enough to support our family after the business costs. I would have enough, uh, plus a little extra spending money. My problem is I don't have, if, if I do that, that's all well and good. But then if I don't have the customers, I'm stuck there with 520 bird and trout knives. <laughs> and I'm yep. just sitting on the couch with, uh, well, I'm probably not even sitting on a couch at that point because I don't have a house. Yep. So uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is my dilemma. Do we go straight off the hop and go straight into the full-time knife making and blacksmithing world? Um, and if so, how do we make it a viable business? Solve my problems, Alex. What do I do? <laughs> That's a very multi-layered question you've got there. It is, yes. You've started some groundwork, which is really good. And I, uh, I don't know how much of that is just you agonizing over this and, and having sleepless <laughs> nights thinking about and how much of it is the, the limited conversation that we have had. But one mm. of the things that I, I like that you've done is that you've clearly um, worked out what your your monthly is or whatever mm. interval you're going to work with. One of the first things you've got to do really early on is establish a interval that your finances are going to work on, which is mm. very easy for most people to do because if you've got a day job, you are paid at an interval. Sometimes it's weekly, sometimes it's fortnightly, sometimes it's monthly. So your life will be kind of structured around that. Even mm. if you're not consciously aware of it, it uh, as soon as you start providing solely for yourself, you'll become very consciously aware of it that mm. this interval happens and it starts becoming a race against meeting that interval each time. I noticed that you pointed out that you um, have to do it for, to make a year's worth of wage, but um, that can be a little bit too intimidating. Sometimes you just got to think of the next week, fortnight, month, whatever it is that your interval right. is. Um, and to do that, you've got to work out what your overheads are. 
and mm. you've correctly identified food and rent and, and business costs and, and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and the, the biggest thing that I always want to grab people and shake them with is if they're at all considering this move, the first thing you have to do is eliminate as much debt as you can possibly get a, realistically do and lower mm. your overheads. So that means a lot of sacrifice, um, mm. giving up things. It seems like sacrifice at first. As somebody who has gone through this at multiple levels down to every time I think I've sacrificed everything and I'm now living minimalist, I think I realize I can go deeper um, mm. very comfortably. But it's just, but if I looked at it from the perspective of before I made the sacrifices, it would have been horrifying to consider. Uh, so mm. move to a smaller place or move rural or, um, you know, give up the the fancy car that you've got a car loan on <laughs> and buy an old secondhand romper, um, that sort of thing. And mm. move to um, one of the biggest money savers that um, I was able to do to lower my overheads was reduce food costs by cooking like a fortnight's worth of dinners in a, at once mm. in a giant stock pot. And, and freezing them off. Hmm. Um, oddly enough, um, that scrapes together. Like my wife and I eat home-cooked dinners, healthy dinners every night, and it costs, we worked at $1.70 for the two hmm. of us each night. Hmm. But if how we were eating before was literally 10 times that minimum hmm. each night. Um, so all these things add up, and you can bring your overheads down quite a bit. But if you can, the, the, once, you, once you've sort of started on that journey, you start seeing more and more things that you could do without or do better and it mm. gets that overhead down. But then you start looking at that interval that we were talking about. And let's just say monthly, for example. You work out how small can you get the m- amount of money that you need to get by in that month. And then from there, you now have a point to aim for, a thing to work for. And it's like a benchmark of, can I do this? Because hmm. if you were to look at your overheads now in your current life and work it out based on your interval that it's X amount per month, you then have to look at what you're capable of not just producing but selling, as you very correctly pointed out, making hmm. it's one thing, moving it's the other thing. Yeah. Um, and, and they're two very different topics. And so you start looking at it and breaking it down by, well, I'd, if I could just make and sell X number of these in that interval of, say, a month, mm-hmm. I would be able to reach that amount. And if I did that every month, I would be able to provide yeah. for myself. But the nature of the beast is that you can't you can, – you can work very, very hard and guarantee the making of the product – yeah, there's no way you can guarantee the moving of the product, and that's the mm-hmm. that's where the fear is. So, the the more you lower your overhead, and the more the smaller your monthly is, the less scary it is to try and move the amount of money. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, yeah. Um, and it, and you know, you, you, it's hard to obviously adding kids into the mix is always going to be expensive. Yeah. It's just <laughs> it's just the way of it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, adding. Um, like some people have particularly tight familial ties and they hmm. 
can't fathom the or can't bear the idea of moving away to a rural place that might halve their rent, for example, mm. because it puts them miles away from everything, everyone that they know and are close to. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, if you're going to dive into a, a, a solo business venture like this, you're going to become an isolationist anyway because mm-hmm. you're going to be working a lot. Um, yeah, and you have to. It, it, like, it, it, there's going to be multiple painful moments where you've got to say no to people and say, I can't catch up because I've got to do this because no matter how well prepared you are, there will be a settling in period where you get used to the rhythm. Once you got used to the rhythm, you can start allocating time and say, Hey, yeah, let's go out for the weekend and do this and all that. But you've got to know where you stand first Hmm. and finding that rhythm. I know I'm getting a little bit ahead of where you've asked the question, (laughs) but to get to that point, you first have to get that that data of how much do I need per month, how small can I get that number down to, mm-hmm. um, and how far am I really willing to take this to get that? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you've you've already taken a few steps down this path because you're actually making and selling things. So you've been selling mm-hmm. stuff. You've got orders. You've got yeah. a certain amount of data that you can play with here. Yeah. So. Um, you're already a few steps down that road because one of the things that I would say is while you are gainfully employed elsewhere and you have stability and a regular paycheck coming in, Mm. every bit of spare time you've got and get used to spending all your spare time because it's (laughs) going to become a regular thing, every bit of spare time you've got when you get home from work, when you're on weekends and things like that, make and make Mm. and make and make and make and make. Yeah. And do... Markets, car boot sales, suitcase rummages, flea markets, whatever. Go to galleries and whatever you can do to put your stuff out there. Mm-hmm. Schedule them, line them up. Every weekend, you should be doing a different event and just try and sell your stuff. And mm. while you're still gainfully employed somewhere else, the point of it isn't to make money. It's to find out what sells and it's to find out what kind of money you can make. Mm. Because even if you're only doing a, a percentage of what your monthly needs to be, you've got data then that you can extrapolate because mm. you've been working nine to five somewhere else and only doing it in your spare time. So what if mm. all of a sudden you just were doing it all the time? You mm. now have some data. You can multiply that amount by to actually sort of get a rough idea of what you can expect to get with your current strategy. Mm. Um, so if it ends up being not enough... If you do that math and you do that experimentation, you're like, oh, crap, that's, that would only get me half of what I need. Yeah. The answer shouldn't be to be like, well, this wouldn't work. The answer would be, how do I lower my overheads further? Hmm. And what do I need to do in terms of my making and what I'm making and how I'm selling it to move more of a product that can earn more? Hmm. I want to bring the overheads down. I want to bring the profits up. Yeah. And eventually they will meet at an equilibrium and then you're ready to, to start thinking about making the move. Hmm. And it really comes so, down to those two things. So would you say once you reach that equilibrium, when you're, uh, the money that you're bringing in is meeting your overheads, is that, I know every single case is going to be different, um, but is that then the time to say, okay, now we can go full time or would that be the time to say, okay, now we can think about the possibility of going full-time 
think of it as a reality that is is possible. It doesn't mean that right. you should absolutely dive into it uh, because making that move, um, it no matter how good you are, unless you are lucky. Some people are lucky; they mm. come up with something that's just everybody wants it. Yeah. You can't count on that, um, mm. and so you've got to enter this with a nest egg um, mm. because when you're working for yourself, the nature of what savings are changes. When mm. you work a, a day job for somebody and have a regular paycheck, the savings that you have are things that you're saving up for. Mm. Maybe it's a holiday, maybe it's a new car, maybe it's your child's you know, education, college fund or something like that. You're putting aside money for these future things and you know that you've got that future because you've got a steady paycheck. When you are working for yourself, completely outside of your control, there are going to be entire months where you make nothing. Mm. There are going to be um, times where a sale takes off and you earn you know, four times what you need in a month mm. and you have to work your ass off in that time and you need a month off afterwards, otherwise you're going to burn out. Mm. Um, sometimes health will go sour and or you'll injure yourself and you can't work and you don't get sick leave, you don't get annual mm. leave, you don't get any sort of paid leave. So sometimes mm. you need to um, just take that time. And so savings aren't for the future, for a long time mm. when you're working for yourself. Savings are for the dips, yeah. the times where you either can't or don't earn what you need to earn. Mm. And you keep the hustle going because sometimes uh, you're going to earn more than you needed to earn. And that goes, mm. the excess goes back into the savings. And it's this buffer that you really need to work out how much, like realistically you want to have three or four months worth of earning zilch. Mm. of your overheads needing needing to be covered because if you can't make anything in three or four months then you are failing as a business right you're doing something wrong you need to move yeah. you need to change mark change product line do a pivot mm. because something's yeah. going wrong um mm. i don't i don't care what you're selling or who you are if you're not selling at all you're doing something wrong um mm -hmm. so um you need to get to the point where you know that you have something viable on your hands first. Mm -hmm. Then you need to build up a little nest egg, make your plans, and then move forward. Right. So it's a lot of like making the decision to go full time. You have to be absolutely set for basically almost six months of nothing to come in before or like basically once you go full time, you need like almost six months of buffer because there might not be coming in anything coming in in that six months. Um, well, I mean, when you what, absolutely what, go full time, what makes people buy from you? It's going to be a reputation. Um, hmm. The people buy from people who sell. Hmm. And if you you're new on the market, you, you're going to have very minimal people coming and you know, poking around hmm. and seeing what you've got to offer out yeah. of curiosity. But it's not until you are one of those stalls where there's a crowd at your table every time you turn mm. up that you're actually going to be, you know, able to make it. And it's the same as yeah. if you're selling online, like your reputation, like knife making is a perfect example. People aren't always buying the knife. They're buying the mm. maker and yeah. the reputation that you have there. I mean, I've, I'm coming up to 10,000 followers now on Instagram 
it was not the case for a long time. When I first started, um, when I when I actually made the move to full time, I think I had four hundred and sixty followers hmm. on Instagram, and I was relying on local markets. And um, it's it's just years of slog to yeah. build that up and doing whatever you can with different things, you know, hosting podcasts, doing YouTube <laughs> channels. Um, you know, uh, competing in events like the 48-Hour Dagger Challenge, which I love, mm. not just because it is a, an amazing challenge, but it's an amazing opportunity to show the world what you've got in a, mm. a, um, an, an avenue that you normally wouldn't get to. You have eyes right. on you that would normally not be on you, um, mm. which is why I say things like art galleries are great um, when there's exhibitions mm. going on of local makers and things like that. It gets your name out there and yeah. it's unfortunately people think i'm making a cool thing and so people will buy it no they yeah. won't it's just, it's just not how it works they're buying mm. you and you need to have a reputation so mm. that takes time and you have to be prepared to earn bugger all until that mm. time is up you've got to yeah. like blues singers will say you've got to pay your dues yeah yeah for sure so yeah, that was a couple of the things that I was thinking about is things like the 48 hour dagger challenge. Um, I was thinking about doing it this year. Um, Excellent. But oh, I have such a plan. Uh, it's not nearly going to be as fancy as yours. But it's going to be my first dagger I ever made. So <laughs> um, hey, two years ago was, was my first dagger. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was thinking like, is that a good use of my time if I'm trying to build up my business? Because surely 90% of the people who are going to see that are going to be other knife makers who aren't going to be buying my knives. You'd be surprised. It's a spectator sport. Um, if you, this is, it's hard to explain to somebody until they've actually been in the challenge. After hmm. you've gone through the challenge, wait six months and then open up your phone, go to Instagram and check your insights on your post mm. and there's a section in there where you can um, see the most viewed posts that you've mm. done and do it in the last like six months i guarantee you half of the the top ranking posts will be from the 48 hour dagger challenge it's not mm. just knife makers it's only knife makers competing but it's a spectator sport every right. knife maker in that competition has an audience mm. their audience are watching this person that they follow in the competition, but they're mm. doing it via the hashtag. And so they're right. seeing everybody else and it's all intermingling. And all of a sudden you've got Niels Vandenberg's audience is also following you. Valhalla Ironworks yeah. uh, audience is also looking at your stuff. Everybody's looking at everybody's daggers. And mm. so if you're just going in there and doing something just basic, and even if it's clean, mm. it's next to, someone like Niels Vandenberg. So you got to bring yeah. your A game. Yeah. <laughs> um, the For first sure. time you go into it, I, I agree. You should do something basic, something clean, because mm. doing a, an ornate takedown dagger in 48 hours is ridiculous. Yeah. But if you pull it off, that in yeah. itself is something special. It's like, well, this is someone we've got to take seriously. Mm. Um, but it's, it's not just for knife makers. I mean, any craft mm. is going to have something like that that yeah. puts you on the map, you know? Mm -hmm. So that kind of gets into a question from, uh, so I reached out to a bunch of people. My brother-in-law is starting a clock and watch making business mm. um, out on uh, PEI, Prince Edward Island here in Canada. And so he was wondering, um, as he gets started, is it better because you talked about um, going to your local markets and stuff like that, but also trying to get your online community. Um, is it better to start 
focusing your marketing in a, in a local community or is it better to start online or should you just focus like equally on both? How are you, um, how, do, how do you build yourself up to begin with? Well, any marketing question, I always start with the same thing. It's like, who are you selling to? You've got to figure out who, who, who is your customer. Hmm. And the reason, the, the, what it comes down to is why are people buying from you? Hmm. Um, as soon as you start asking why would somebody buy, like, for example, uh, I'll, I'll use the knife making example, yeah. but this applies yeah. to anything. Um, I make knives and I make pocket knives mainly, hmm. but so do you. You're making a pocket knife. Hmm. Um, uh, Jean-Baptiste Levesque makes pocket knives better than I do, hmm. a million times better than I do. Um, Lindblade makes pocket knives. Hmm. What's stopping people? Why do they want to buy my knife instead of one of their knives? What hmm. What are the choices that are going in the, through their head? It's kind of like um, I, I apologize to any vegans listening, but sometimes <laughs> you just start fanging for a burger. Oh, You're like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lunch is coming up, and you know what? I got the I got the burger urge. Mm. I got to, I got to have a burger, and when you are really wanting a burger, a, a Big Mac at Macca's is not going to do it. Not it's just not going to hit that button, you know. No. But some people they want the Big Mac. Yeah, it's their personal taste, mm. and so they know they want a burger, mm. but there are going to be reasons past experiences, prejudices, yeah. etc., cetera, um, tastes in, in mm. aesthetic and things like that that are going to make them pick one over the other. So mm. They don't want to travel for an hour and a half to get a burger. They want something close to them. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, the right burger you would travel an hour and a half for. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's it. And there are those, those customers. There are the smaller mm. ones, but they're the ones that would – and they know that that burger is going to be 35 bucks, but they're driving an hour and a half and they're paying that because it's the right burger. Yeah. And your product is going to be the same, whatever it is. I don't care if mm-hmm. it's hairpins or clocks or knives or beanie babies. It doesn't matter. The people buying from you have, I don't care how unique your product is, it's a big world. And the mm. internet exists. So mm. you are literally standing from their, the customer's perspective, standing in a line next to everyone else that makes your stuff. Mm. And it's one of the biggest faults you can have as, a, as a, an entrepreneur is to think that you are unique, you are special, and what you have is totally different to what everybody else has. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, it's just not the case. Because no. in your world, you are the the... The, the guy you're the person doing it but mm. from the perspective of the customer you're just one website in a series mm. of tabs in chrome that they can just flick through yeah and which one they settle on is going to come down to questions of, of why they're buying the thing mm. right and so any marketing decision you make whether it's local whether it's in person whether it's online whether it's in a in Facebook or whether it's an Instagram or whether it's on a storefront that you've bought, ask yourself why are the why is the customer there? Why are mm. they even choosing you as an option mm. to go through? And and what questions are they asking themselves to compare yourself to other people? So mm. sometimes that question's really simple. You're there. Like mm. if you have opened an ice cream store at the edge of a desert and there's no other ice cream stores there, you're going to yeah. get business. That's just mm-hmm. smart. That's a smart business move, yeah. you know. Um, but if you like open a barbershop 
in a mall where there are seven other barbershops already running, you're going you to have to be a part. You want to be a damn good barber, you know? Mm. It's it's yeah. just one of those things. So it's kind of if you're if you're able to corner the market in your local community, like say this guy is the only clock and watchmaker on the island, then that's a good place to start while exactly. you're building up your online community as well. And then but at once the, same time, the local community runs out, you're going to have the backup of the online. But at the same time, you've got to start thinking of other things. Like uh, it used to be that a watch was a not just a, a very functional thing to carry um, and, and wear, but it was a fashion statement and it was a mm. status statement. Um, mm. And the fancier the watch, the more it needed to be maintained to be kept in perfect working order. used yeah. to have to... Like for, for the people who are not watch nerds like me, a good, well-made watch like a Rolex or something like that needs servicing like a car does hmm. uh, in order to keep it. And, and a watch shop like that is, uh, you know, having access to a horologist is important hmm. uh, if you if you want to maintain that part of you. But everybody carries smartphones now. Yeah. So, like, people are getting watches and clocks fixed. They're doing it for sentimental value. Yeah, it's um, more of a luxury in a niche market, just like knife making. Like you can go down to Walmart and get a $20 knife. It's going to do a decent job for a year. And now you think another $20 knife. Now you're talking. And that that there is the thing. That's the marketing because mm. you've got to kind of educate people. You've got to explain mm. to people. And doing this in person is a very different job to doing it online. Mm. Um, explain the difference because let mm. me tell you, Rolex are not Rolex. They don't have their reputation from branding and wank. A mm. Rolex is a masterpiece of engineering. Mm. And you cannot go down to Kmart and get, you know, a baby G and call it good. <laughs> They're not the same thing. Just mm. like me ordering a $20 buoy off Amazon is not <laughs> the same as a Carl mm. Royer buoy. Yeah. They're not as, the same. As he pointed planet. out in that video. Yeah. Because he, yeah. And and it's as the person selling the fancier version, you've got to you've got to sell it. And when you're in person, you have a back and forth with people. Yeah. When you're marketing online, there's no back and forth. Mm. You have to present it, put it out there, and it will appear for 0.2 of a second as they scroll past it. And you have mm. that window to make them stop and look and go, "Oh, I want that," and fall in yeah. love with it. That's it. But in person, mm. people are going to come over and they're going to get to see you. And you mm. have to basically explain to them why the thing that you're doing is important and important mm. enough to enter into their world. So some of the customers, half the customers are going to be already looking for somebody doing what you're doing. Mm. And you need to work out what are the things that are making them, you know, why are they shopping for this and try and meet those needs better than your competitors. The other people are people that don't know that they're looking for that thing. Hmm. And they're the people who just fall in love with it. Yeah. And it's like, you know, clocks have that. They, they can do that. I mean, it's, it's on theme with, with, you know, this particular question. The right clock, when you get to actually see it and hear yeah. it and, and see the, the intricacy of the work on it, all of a sudden it makes people fall in love and they're like, I want this in my house. I was, you know, I was here to get some fresh fruit and veg and all of a sudden there's this, 
thing and then they you know they agonize over it and you see them looking from over the other side of the market and all that sort of thing and eventually they come over and they're like all right i'll do it but Mm. you know that also introduces things like haggling and stuff like that so yes the marketing is always going to come down to asking why would they use why would they go to you instead Mm. of somebody else yeah so it's um yeah you can't advertise to everybody at once that's not how Mm. marketing works there's not Mm. just customers you got to know who are you selling to and why are they your customers Mm. yeah yeah because not everyone's going to want what you what you have to offer but there are going to be those people that you want to find oh yeah there are people that go to a grocery store and only buy the like the home brand stuff they, they they say it's all the same, but you know I have yet to find a home brand corn chip that's as good as a Dorito Cheese Supreme. Mm. <laughs> it's just not out there. It's just not out there. You know, no. there's other chips that are as good, but mm. not Doritos. Yeah. So I think um, just going to finish off Nelson's questions here. Um, so I think we basically covered his other two. But one thing that you've actually mentioned in the past um, is a question that uh, that he asked, and he doesn't listen to this podcast. But hopefully, he'll listen to this one. Um, as a small business owner, how do you avoid being burnt out? Yeah, that's a that's a, a one of I've actually learned that the hard way. Mm. Uh, I did hit burnout, mm. and um, it put me in hospital for five weeks. Mm. It's that bad. Um, yeah. It. Like running your own business is a, a fast track ticket to uh, anxiety, depression, <laughs> fear. Um, mm. Fear is a big one because mm. you go from a world of structure of having a steady paycheck to not knowing where the next, you know, sale is going to come from or whether or not mm. you're going to have enough to get by. And having yeah. to change all of these paradigms, like what we were talking about with savings and what they mean and things like that, mm-hmm. changing those paradigms is scary because you've been not just held them your whole life, but you've had them reinforced by the entire world around you your whole life. And mm-hmm. that's confronting and scary. Yeah. Um, and all of that adds up to burning out. But the biggest thing that leads to burning out is the, um, the fact that before this became your job, it was your hobby. Hmm. And you, the the love affair started with that. Oh, I wish I could do this every day. You hmm. know, it's the thing that you had just been sitting at work on Wednesday, going, "Oh, I just can't wait for Saturday so I can do this <laughs> thing." And then when you're doing this thing, it's like, "Oh, I wish I just was. I wish this was my job." Ha 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 ha. And then it becomes <laughs> your job, and you realize how much work that is, yeah. and. Sometimes years will pass before it clicks with you. Oh, I don't have a hobby anymore. <laughs> it's it's my work. And yeah. hobbies play an important role. You know, they are an escape. And mm. sometimes, like, it's funny, funnily enough, um, this is why the picnic table was such an important build for me. One of the things that I used to love to do, and my wife and I would we'd, we'd go out after dark on clear nights where you could see this. The, we we would joke and say we could see the star because we lived in the city <laughs> and there was basically see like <laughs> one star in the sky because everything was so bright. Mm-hmm. But we'd sit there and we'd have a, this ridiculously tiny charcoal grill that was like thirty centimeters by fifteen centimeters, <laughs> and we would like cook. Uh, cobs of corn and some chicken mm. and stuff like that and share a bit with our dog and mm. um, 
it was a nice little thing that we used to do mm. and it was very easy to forget that everything else in the world existed mm. while we were doing that and it was this way to just sort of switch off mm. and after we moved here and started doing this uh, working for ourselves we we it clicked with us recently we, we haven't done that since mm. yeah. we haven't we haven't gone anywhere we haven't mm. gone bushwalking i used to bushwalk almost every weekend um <laughs> haven't done it and i live in the bushwalking capital of the country now mm. um i don't didn't have any hobbies anymore i, I had that realization about three years in that mm. I, d- I just don't have any i've been working and when i get inside i i'll just sort of zone out and watch youtube videos and try and recuperate <laughs> um from all the focus that i've been having and i was doing nothing for just enjoyment and i was mm. doing nothing as um togetherness time with my partner and it's just all of that had been lost in the haze of work based in that fear of if i don't work i won't earn Mm -hmm. and if i don't earn this law collapse you're always just waiting for this you know i hear a knock at the door and there's a man with a clipboard there saying i'm sorry you had your chance it didn't work out you gotta go (laughs) go into a cubicle and be miserable for the rest of your life it's not what happens but Mm. you, you sort of I think it's the the curse of living in the Western world is that you are raised fearing um, destitution, homelessness. Mm. Mm. You think if you're not, if you don't have a job and you don't have a roof over your head, you'll be a hobo and that's Mm. it. Your life's over now. Game over. The screen flashes black and that's it. But it's life kind of doesn't work that way. Like it's Mm. usually more or less things tend to work out. Um, but it's easy to forget that when you're in the the heat of battle, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so it took me far longer than it should have to Mm -hmm. realize that I wasn't doing the things for me anymore. And that Mm -hmm. takes, um, takes saying no to people. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the first changes I made was that I stopped taking commissions Mm. Or tried to. I'm still working on that one. It's hard. Um, <laughs> stopped in air quotes. <laughs> yeah, stopped taking commissions. Um, and, you know, they will burn you out faster than anything else because there's mm. not just you having to do, um, you know, work to meet time deadlines, but there's people waiting. Mm. Whereas with your other stuff, you're just making it on your schedule. It's mm-hmm. like this is I can get this much done each day and everything, but then all of a sudden you've taken a commission and you realize, oh, I've got to fit this in as well, and then this person's mm-hmm. waiting for it, and they might even just send like a really friendly message, hey, I'm not in any rush or anything, but just wanted to know yeah. a preview. But that'll spiral you into anxiety about the thing for <laughs> weeks, and it, it's it's awful. So, mm-hmm. um, in order to avoid that burnout, you've got to have that sort of. I hate to use the term, but it's sort of like work-life balance that they mm. talk about is the corporate yeah. wank factor that they always talk about. You've got to have mm. that. You've got to have yeah. hobbies. You've got to say, it's 5 o'clock, I'm stopping. Mm. I don't care if I haven't finished yet. I'm just not going to push through. I'm just going to stop. Mm. Um, you've got to remember to eat well and, and eat and stay hydrated. Yeah. Um, some multiple days i have not so much recently but when i first got into this i would get to probably four or five in the evening before realizing i hadn't eaten anything all day Mm. and all i'd had to drink was a cup of coffee in the morning 
It's just because <laughs> my brain was so focused on I've got to get all this stuff done. Yeah. And you keep wanting to take on more and more stuff because you 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 are your own you're the head salesperson, head marketing, mm-hmm. head production, the manager. And it's basically guaranteed income at that point. The commissions that you take is people basically coming to you saying, I want this, take my money. Yeah. And, and so you're like, well, I'm saying no to that when you're I got the bills. You're, you're, yeah. But it's not exactly. just saying no to work, it's saying no to people who want to like you might have family or friends that want to Mm. take you away for the weekend but you've got stuff that you need to do Mm. and what it comes down to is you have to become somebody who is very scheduled and you've got to allocate time and if somebody is trying to steal you away during time that is allocated for work you have to Mm. say no I not think, oh, well, if I go away and do that, then I can move that time to there and, and shuffle. Mm. Don't do that. That leads yeah. to burnout really, really quickly. And it's actually what led to this episode of the Forgecast because mm. I, I really like educating people. It's it's a passion of mine. I was talking about the mentoring and things that I did and doing the online courses. I, I like teaching. Mm. But if I was to actually answer every question that came in, <laughs> I would like to. I really would. I'd, I'd mm. love to be able to take that opportunity. But I, I was spending two or three hours a day on my yeah. phone and I, I just was, it was eating into my ability to earn. So that's why I now direct people to the Forgecast. And it was a lot of that was re- realizations like this that these things start sneaking and creeping into your world very subtly mm. and they're draining you, they're draining your batteries. And stopping you from being able to have that flow, mm. that sort of nice flow in your day. At the yeah. end of your day, you should feel um, like you've accomplished a good amount. Mm-hmm. You should feel um, a normal, a, a, a good amount of tired, mm. not not exhausted, not flat out. And you yeah. definitely shouldn't feel perky and fit, like you know, like you've had an easy day. You should have yeah. a normal level of tired. You should be looking forward to you know having a having a cup of tea and maybe watching a favorite show or playing a game that you like or you know spending some time with your family or or Mm. something but if you if you are dragging yourself in at the end of the day these are the little warning signs will will pop up if you start getting migraines and you've never gotten migraines before in your life stuff like that is your body's way of telling you the burnout's coming and if you don't change things now, it's going to be bad. Um, mm. I've heard some horror stories of people that have had burnout. A friend, mm. probably one of my best friends actually had it happen and he was working like realistically 16-hour days, seven mm. days a week. And he woke up one morning and like the alarm went off and he went to slap the the alarm button. His arm didn't move. <laughs> and he tried to get out of bed and realized he couldn't move. Mm. And it, he was just sort of lying there for an hour trying to move and eventually managed to roll onto his side a little bit and grab his phone. And he called his boss and he's like, I can't. Uh, he was working at a farm at the time. Um, mm. And he called his boss and said, I, I can't come into work today. I can't move. And his boss is like, you better get in here. It's harvest season. We need you. And he's like, I, I can't move. I don't know what's wrong with me. And he ended up 
talking to his boss into saying, oh, come in when you can, because this is why he had the burnout, because <laughs> his boss was pushing him so hard. Right. And um, he went back to sleep. The three hours later, he woke up and he could move again. Hmm. And he went to work. And, <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's not good. That sort of thing is what leads to, you know, discovering you've got an aneurysm in your 50s. Mm, yeah. It's just there are signs and you, you have to look for those signs. Yeah. So I guess that kind of answers my next question is um, how do you change your mindset when you're doing, when you're scheduling in those rest days, how do you change your mindset from feeling guilty? I guess just think of your friend and I don't want to end up like that. <laughs> yeah. I'll, but, I'll um, the, it's one of those things. Um, <laughs> um, do you remember my song of the song of the week ages ago was uh, the best advice I've ever gotten. And it was the song wear sunscreen. Yes. Did you ever listen yeah. to that one? Oh, yeah. 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 One of the things was uh, remember compliments you receive and f- forget the insults. And yeah. then the next line is if you succeed in doing this, tell me how. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My answer is kind of like that. Like, right. if somebody does figure out how to stop feeling guilty on days mm. off, I'd like to know. But I'll tell mm. you one thing that helps a great deal. Um, and that is to, um, if you are scheduling other things correctly, which, if you're running a small business, you need to. Um, you, you, I, I don't care how good you think you are or bad you think you are at organizing and scheduling. You need to have to-do lists. You need mm. to remember to do things at certain intervals. You need to make sure your materials are stocked. You need to do all mm. these things. And these are just functions of the business. Mm. If you remove one of those functions, fuckery is, is afoot. Like mm. things, shenanigans ensue yeah. if you take those things away. See rest as one of those functions that keeps the business going. And it it really is just a function of work. Right. Because if you are not functional, mm. everything else will collapse like a flan in a cupboard, like dominoes. Yeah. Mm. So it's, it is working. Mm. To actually yeah. have proper rejuvenating rest mm-hmm. and taking time away from work to do the things that you love or just to, just to chill, do nothing, whatever. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, charcoal grilling, some corn on the cob under the stars, mm-hmm. going for a bushwalk, whatever. Playing mm-hmm. Monopoly with your kids. Doesn't matter what it is. Whatever brings you that recentering energy that rest does. Yeah see it as an actual function. One of the things that without it, your business would fall apart. Hmm. Um, that helps me a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's a, well, yeah, I'll let you know, or anyone can let us know if, if they figure out how to do that. I remember um, so when I started the business, it probably the worst time to start a business. So it was two weeks. Well, I started blacksmithing two weeks after my first daughter was born. I don't think my wife appreciated that. Um, but uh, I started the business, um, about just under a year later, like actually registered the business and stuff like that. Um, I did the business. I was teaching at the same time. Um, I was working on my master's degree at the same time in mathematics and every single thing I did, I felt guilty that I wasn't doing the other stuff. So if I was, um, working at like working out at the forge, I was like, oh, I should really, really be working on my masters. If I was working on my masters, I was like, oh, I should, I need to get out of the forge so that I can actually build this, um, 
build this thing up. And anytime I was doing either of those and teaching, I was like, why aren't I spending time with my family? Like, this is surely what I'm here to do. So yeah, finding the balance. I ended up just dropping the masters. It, it was the only thing Never. that was costing me too much money. <laughs> Not being able to settle or feel settled mm. um, is one of those warning signs of a burnout. Mm. Right. Yeah, so I'm glad. So I'm, I'm glad you did what you did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The masters was the only thing that was it was costing me three or four grand a year, and uh, I mean probably the blacksmithing cost me a lot more than that in the long run. But uh, yeah, but which but, yeah, do you enjoy no, more? Oh yeah, for sure the blacksmith. Yeah. Every time I was working on my masters, I was just crying trying to write my thesis. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. I bet you so, that was an impressively titled thesis too. If it was a, if it was a, it didn't have a title like yet. <laughs> it didn't oh, have a okay. title yet. That was going to be the last thing that I did is actually figure out a title. But it was all about um, forest fire spotting, like forest fire tracking. Oh, cool! Um, so uh, I was working with a guy out in Alberta who was like he was actively fighting fires while I was talking to. Well, not he wasn't like on the front lines, but he was tracking them. Yep. And um, I was basically coming up with a mathematical model to track how the wind speed and stuff like that would take. Uh, embers from the fire and move them in front of the fire line and start other fires in front of it, basically. Um, I was trying to figure out, so the type of trees that you had, the type of wind, the wind speed that you had and all this stuff, how would it actually affect how many embers did you have from that type of fire? How dry was the grass and the brush? And how likely would an ember be to start a fire ahead of the fire line? So that's what I was working on. That has nothing to do with. I'm this. sure it would have had a a, a, a lovely complex thesis titles. Fascinate me. They're always phenomenally mm. uh, like elaborate, complex, way too complex, more complex than they need to be, so that you can impress the people who are reading it. Mm-hmm. I like, wrote it one have that just was been... the the integration of player emergent behavior with procedural generation. <laughs> yeah, doesn't that yeah. sound thrilling? It does. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> It, I mean, mine could have just been titled Forest Fire Spotting with Math. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't think my thesis supervisor would have been too thrilled with that title. No, so. no it's, yeah. part, it's part of the grade. It's, you, your grade's going to yeah. come down to the title. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. If, uh, if the math people don't want to read your math uh, thesis, then you've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. Or very, very right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, should we try and do some more questions from other people here? Of course. Yeah. Okay. So Jake Cooper, um, my inspiration of the week um, or of my life, I guess my blacksmithing life. Um, So they work on pretty big, uh, big scale stuff. So all their gates and stuff like that. And so it's not necessarily going to be applicable to the knife maker who's making, even if they're making thousand dollar knives or something like that, these gates, I have to imagine cost a lot more than that. Um, I don't have a number, but I could imagine the size like a two 20 foot gates covered in gold leaf. You're not getting that for a thousand dollars, but, um, no, so he, no. <laughs> oh, I meant to wear that shirt today. I let you down. I'm sorry. Um, so he was asking, how do you find the right clients for larger jobs? Architectural iron work on this, um, on the scale, um, that we do is, uh, not very accessible to everyone. So what's the best way to find new customers for those larger jobs? It's very rare that they get repeat customers. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously. Um, the, it's a, it's a, some people make products that, uh, are consumable and Mm -hmm. that's how they get the repeat customers. Some people make products that, um, are good enough that they become collectible 
And mm. so people want multiple of them. Some people, mm-hmm. it's the reputation. Uh, yeah. Reputation is a big one for one-off purchases. It's mm. like, oh, we, we absolutely must have a, a such and such for the mm. for the yard. Um, but it comes down to very similar answer to um, your was it your brother with the clock shop? What? Uh, brother-in-law. Brother-in-law. Uh, yeah. Same sort of thing. You need to find out why um, why they would want it, why mm. they would get it, and. I, I I hate to disparage anybody that gets wrought iron gates and things made, but there's a very specific type of person <laughs> that <laughs> wants that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and frankly, those people tend to have the kind of money to spare for that sort of mm. thing. Yeah. Um, but there's going to be more than just, you know, rich, wanky people that want it. Mm. And yeah. you've got to sort of, uh, the more you... If you're making an exclusive product, hmm. let's say you've uh, think of it like a scale of exclusivity, where hmm. um, at the zero to a hundred, a hundred is 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 it Jake? His name's Jake. Jake, yeah, yeah. A hundred is Jake's gates, right, and, and fences and things, and zero is the hardware store stamped mass production ones. Yeah. Um, you know, he's trying to attract customers that are in the 80 to 100 range. Hmm. But the more he slides down the scale and offers options that are further and further down, the broader his customer base comes. Hmm. And um, you start getting more customers that don't pay as much, but also hmm. those projects don't take as much take as long, yeah. to, to do. So yeah. obviously you don't get into like gold leaf wrought iron gate production unless yeah. you're quite passionate about it mm-hmm. um so there's going to be a line somewhere on that scale where if mm. he were to go below it he would not be able to live with himself and not enjoy the work yeah um so find where that line is would be the first thing that i would say mm. um and see how far down that's it doesn't mean it doesn't mean like if it, let's say as an uh, like just an example he slides to 60 on there okay he's doesn't mean he can he has to stop doing the 100 work it's just that he also is going to do 60 work and everything so all of a sudden you've got to find out first how broad of a customer base are you willing to work with Mm. and how does that fit in with your current business model um because if you narrow your field to just one type of customer you're going to limit yourself so first off get that going then categorize the types of customers that are in that range. And mm. by categorize them, I mean, look at why they're buying them. So mm. the people who are buying the 60 gates are going to be doing it for different reasons. Some of the time or a lot of the time to the people who are buying the hundred gates mm. and they are going to be, because they're doing it in different reasons, they're going to be dwelling in different circles. They're going to be interacting yeah. in different ways. So for example, the, 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 you know, V-neck pullover crowd <laughs> doesn't hang out on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's what he was saying. It's like social media is basically obsolete for them. Like they post it just so people can see their work, but they're not getting yeah, orders from people you, on Instagram. You know what they do join things like wine clubs, golf mm-hmm. clubs, country clubs, yeah. um, all of these places. Now, if you find where they congregate, you can 
get your stuff seen at those places or mm. talked about at those places. And yeah. the go-to that everybody has is flyers and business cards, mm. which only work with a certain type of person up to a mm-hmm. certain level. Um, and after that, it just doesn't. They, they wouldn't even know what to do with a business card if you handed <laughs> it to them. Yeah. Um, so you can start doing things like um, art installation pieces. Mm. And art installations are frequented by this sort of person. They absolutely must have this person's work in there, mm. whatnots. Um, you can do uh, donation pieces. So, for example, um, you if you've ever gone to country clubs before, and I've I've had the, the luxury of being able to go to them in the past, not mm. because I'm a member but because I was doing work <laughs> there, um, different parts of it uh, just they've got plaques on everything this was Hmm. donated by this person this was donated blah 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 i imagine a ritzy wine club or country club or golf club or something would love to have some new gates installed and it would Mm -hmm. be the talk of that club Um, this is just a a lone example of the sort of thing but that Mm -hmm. is a more of a business card than anything else could be for that type of person Whereas the people who are getting the 60 sort of gates, which are still lovely and still much more than the vast majority of people would ever be able to afford, those types of people are, um, they're flipping houses and things. They are, you know, doing the total teardown renovation to be able to add $300,000 to the value of their property. And they're going to want something to make it stand out from everybody else. And, as uh, you know that sort of person likes to keep up with the joneses and likes to stand Mm -hmm. out they like exclusivity and exclusivity on its own is one of the most powerful motivators in any type of sales of any Mm -hmm. anything that you're doing because um, are you familiar with the german word schadenfreude i am not it's a I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. I oh, that's why I don't know it then. That's... Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'll say it like an Australian, Schadenfreude. <laughs> um, it is a, uh, a German word for a feeling that you get, a feeling of pleasure that you have something that somebody else does not. Hmm. And specifically that they can't have it because you've right. got it. Yeah. Um, Every human on the planet experiences schadenfreude to a different degree. Some people are just softer hearted and kinder and don't experience it very much. A lot of people experience it very heavily. And Mm. it's kind of like, um, you know, the new brand comes out with the new shirt and you get a hold of the shirt, the limited run that first came out and you wear it everywhere just so that everybody Mm. sees that you've got that shirt. Yeah. Um, I imagine Jake is not pumping out these incredibly elaborate <laughs> wrought iron pieces. They're an exclusive thing. He can only mm-hmm. make so many at a time. Um, mm-hmm. And so having, if you're one of the people looking for the 60, 70 sort of quality crowd mm-hmm. and they're doing something like a reno, they want their property to stand out in the street amongst all of their fellows because let's face yeah. it, streets tend to be the same socioeconomic value. That, uh, that's how suburbs were originally 
laid out mm-hmm. and around the world. It was a way of separating the classes. So these people are always doing, you know, um, hedge trimming into animals and things and, and maintaining yeah. their gardens. And the lawn has to be the Sir Walter grass that never is allowed <laughs> to grow higher than 1.7 inches and, and all this sort of shit. Because if they don't, if they slip, then they're seen badly by Mm -hmm. their peers but if you suddenly rock up with this thing like a a magnificent custom wrought iron fencing and gatework and things like that Mm. everybody on the street suddenly is desperately jealous (laughs) and it's that kind of currency that drives people um for that sort of exclusive item i mean right it's it's what it's why Kyle Royer is able to sell a sword for $70,000. Yeah. You don't need a sword. It's the 21st century. <laughs> and even if you did need a sword, why would you use one so fancy? It's mm. simply because it's so exclusive. It's beautiful. Mm. It's one of a kind. Nobody else can have it if you've got it. Yeah. And so it's this, uh, this magnificent thing that allows you to feel and bask in the glory of the schadenfreude around you because hmm. let me tell you there's there's not many people that are into knives that would not love to have a Carl Roy knife but oh, they can't sure. afford it yeah yeah <laughs> and with good reason like the, mm-hmm. they're worth every cent just like oh, i'm yeah. sure Jake's gates are worth every cent hmm. and so he needs to push that he needs to kind of like what we were talking about before he needs to educate these people of why they need it hmm. Because yeah. from the perspective of somebody that's doing a house reno, for example, they would, from their perspective, just as likely not have proper wrought iron fencing and gating as have the, have it or mm. maybe like um, a banister, like uh, ornate banister yeah. railing yeah. Um, or even internal railings around uh, mezzanine levels and things like that. Mm. They might not even have considered that that was an option. Mm. But... The whole notion of doing a house reno to increase the value, people who live in that world, it's like, oh, you've got to do that. That's just part yeah. of it. They just, they, they're, well, they're always thinking of that kind of thing. So you're going to slip into those parts of their world where it's just a given in their life and let hmm. them know that, well, it would look great with this. Hmm. So yeah. it's sort of thinking outside the box. And it's going back to the, the why they would want it. Sometimes yeah. you've got to show them why they would want it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, bigger stuff like that I had no idea about. So figured, uh, it's, you, think, you, think of it as no different to anything else, really. Yeah, yeah. In the end, there are always people who want things. Yeah, and you just got to find out why and where yeah. they are, where they congregate. Hmm. And if yeah. it's not, unfortunately, we only ever have ourselves as reference. So... If somebody yeah. is in a different um, a different social class, different economic class, different country, different culture to us, it's hard to picture what their world is like. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, people are very vastly different in different places and situations. So mm. you need to do a bit of research and find what's driving them, what's driving yeah. their decision-making processes uh, and work in with that. Hmm. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Kyle Royer and his uh, selling $70,000 knives and stuff like that. And it kind of leads into um, a question from Lindsay Creative. 
Um, she was asking, how do we know when to change prices? Basically, when to increase your prices? Because I'm assuming when Kyle Royer first started out, I'm assuming he didn't sell his first sword for $70,000. That's no. come from years and years and years of experience. And not only experience, but skill and talent and practice and all yeah. those tens of thousands of hours. Um, I guess I, I, so what, when do we change our prices? Like, how do we know we've reached a level that we can actually increase our prices? Should our prices change with the market Yeah. or are we in such a niche market that we don't like our prices aren't really affected by what's going on in the world? Yeah. So I am, uh, one of my more controversial opinions, which comes from, um, the fact that I'm a behavioral game theorist and not an economist is that I don't believe in hourly rates mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was, I, I think you have a YouTube video on that, don't you? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, pe yeah people buy what oh, they buy okay. for what they will buy it for. Right. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. And once you get more proficient in a process, if you're going on an hourly rate, you're basically becoming better at something and getting paid less for it. Yeah, exactly. And people say, well, you should, if you're better at it, then you should be charging um, more per hour and, and, mm. and it turns into this whole big complex web of this yeah. goes down so this goes up and all that sort of thing and it's it's mm. nonsense it's absolutely mm. nonsense um for example you brought up carl royer uh after i brought up carl royer we're all talking about <laughs> carl royer he's um, the guy to talk about a while back he made a set of five small hunting knives mm. do you remember those um i don't know if i do, Beaut actually. beautiful damascus uh small uh knives and each one had a different flavor handle uh but they were all the same more or less the same knife but with different handle woods and um they it took him 200 hours of work to make those five knives hmm. now um i don't know how accurate this information was but he put them up for sale as soon as they were done and as soon as they had sold which took all of 12 minutes <laughs> the post the post went down but right. i heard from multiple people who did see the post that they were being sold for two thousand dollars each mm. uh, which is a very reasonable price considering mm -hmm. the the quality the build quality of the knives and the reputation of the maker so if he sold five knives at $2,000 each and mm. took 200 hours to make those five knives, he was working for $50 an hour. Yeah. Kyle Royer, mm -hmm. ma ABS master smith Kyle Royer, one of the uh, arguably the best knife maker in the world, definitely one of the best knife makers in the world. $50 mm. an hour is obscenely low. <laughs> obscenely low for mm. that. Um. There are people in much less trained professions that are earning $60 an hour. Mm. Easy. Oh, yeah. yeah. So the hourly rate notion is it's nonsense. It's absolutely mm. nonsense. And you have to so, basically make a different hourly rate for every single product that you make at that point. Like if you right. charge the same hourly, pro uh, hourly rate for an S-hook as you did for a knife, one of those is going to be vastly over or undercharged yeah. for. So the thing... This this whole discussion works differently if you're depending on the type of business that you're in, because mm. if you're in a company that's got like a normal company that's got an accounts department, an HR department, it's got 
different managers and supervisors and teams and all that sort of thing. It makes sense mm. to just have an hourly rate for people in yeah. different divisions and things because it simplifies everything. Mm. And it's um, it's not no nobody in there is doing artisanal work. Mm. They're trained monkeys, basically. <laughs> that that that's it. They're just cogs in the machine pushing the button when the light turns on. Yeah. In different in different ways. As makers, we are artisans. And mm. artisans are only going to get better. They are by nature going to refine their craft if they're doing it right. Yes. If they're <laughs> if they're truly chasing a passion, they're going to continually improve. Mm. And as they improve, they are going to get more and more recognition for their work. It can't help mm. it. As you get better, more people get amazed by what they see when you first start people aren't amazed with what they see Mm. they're just like you're just another person just noise but Mm. you get better and you get better like uh, i think in past episodes of the show i brought up steve martin when steve martin first Mm. started doing comedy he sucked Mm -hmm. and now he's one of the most recognized comedians on the planet that's because he just worked at it yeah so you you've got a steve martin it because as an artisan compared to somebody like working a monkey working in a, a company, your reputation has a dollar figure attached to it. Hmm. And I'll give you an example. Um, not that I could, but if I, if Niels Vandenberg and I were to make the same dagger, there's no way I could keep up with his skill level, but let's just say miraculous. I was having a really good day, and I was able and I was able to pull it off. And we both mm. made the same dagger. I would not be able to sell mine for the amount that he was able to sell his for. Mm. And that's even taking into account currency differences and Big Mac index and all that sort of thing yeah. between South Africa and Australia. There's no way I'd be able to pull the sort of numbers that he can pull. Because he is Niels Vandenberg. Yeah. And I am just Alex Norton. I am mm. just Valhalla Ironworks. You know, I, I, a recognizable maker in my own right, but mm-hmm. nothing, no spec mm. compared in, in, the, in the industry compared to him. And mm. this will happen in every industry, every field where there are artisans competing against each other. Because we say we're not competing, but in the in the economic sense we are because mm. the customers that are coming into our world are just lining us up and picking one mm-hmm. so whether you're crocheting or painting or whatever people are buying as we talked about earlier in the show people are buying the artists they're buying a bit of you and yep. your reputation is where the dollar figure goes so mm. You charge more, and I do recommend people recommend uh, watch the YouTube video that you talked about before mm-hmm. that I did about pricing your work. And you price it based on what people will buy it for, mm. which is hard to gauge. But every yeah. so often, like as a maker, if you are worth your salt as a maker, every now and then, semi-regularly, you should be deliberately doing a project that is really complex and hard for you Mm. like on the edge of i can't do this you should be doing those projects that's how you grow Mm. do you enter the scary when you do it and pull it off charge more than you normally would Mm. for it 
if it doesn't sell, it doesn't sell. Later on, you can put it on sale and everything, but you need to yeah. put it out there for more than you, a little bit more than you feel comfortable normally asking. Hmm. More often than not, if you pull it off, somebody will buy it. Hmm. And then you've, you have sold it for that price, which yeah. means it was worth that price because somebody bought hmm. it. And because you sold it, your reputation grows a little bit. Hmm. I mean, your reputation will grow just by the sheer act of being there. Yeah. You know, they say like turning up is half of the battle. It's half the battle, it, yeah. It really is. Just be in people's faces literally every day. And that's hmm. that's where like feeding the algorithm and everything comes in. Everyone likes hmm. to say they're rotting the algorithm and changing the algorithm. It's not. There's, <laughs> there's one rule no. for the algorithm and that's post every freaking day. Oh, I know. Every day. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's painful sometimes. It's so it is. painful to try It really is. I hate most of the posts that I do. Yeah. <laughs> and especially if you're like, so we were away for five days at this wedding this past weekend. So like I didn't post every day, but like surely, I, well, I should have been. I would have stacked pictures. some posts on automatic. Yeah. 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 And just had them posting. So I don't even have to worry about it at that point. Yeah. Um. But uh, yeah, I didn't do that. And so I have a personal page as well that I very rarely post to. Um, I think the last time I posted to that was back like April or May of last year. Um, It was just um, advertising my knives for my business page. And then I posted about the bird and trout knife. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Zero. I I didn't post in over a year. And Instagram just hates me now, which is perfectly fine because I don't really like Instagram. But uh, yeah, it's it's amazing how if you don't post for a while and then you post something, it just doesn't get picked up. Your your yeah. followers don't see it. But if they if you are posting regularly and they are seeing mm-hmm. it, but they're seeing the same thing over and over again, they're going to yeah, get, so bored. get bored. They're just going to yeah. they're just going to tune you out. You're just going to be white yeah. noise. You've got to push the envelope, and it doesn't yeah. have to be drastic. It just has to be something that's find something different. that's just on the edge of what you think you're capable of. Hmm. Right, right up there, and then when yeah. once you've pulled it off, even if you don't pull it off, you'll have learnt some stuff, which means yeah. that the next thing you try might be a little bit more realistic for you. Um, mm. But you keep doing that, and that grows your skill set. And yeah. um, there's a great video that I highly recommend that only just came out recently on the YouTube channel Veritasium on what it takes mm. to become an expert. Um, hmm. The old trope of it takes 10,000 hours of doing something to become an expert um, yeah. has been disproven many times. Um, but they have done recent research to find out exactly what it does take to become an expert mm-hmm. at something. And one of those things is uh, deliberate practice, which mm-hmm. um, is referring to that act of pushing yourself again and again, like repeatedly going into the uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and because you're an artisan, that needs to be coupled with regular like posting, showing the process, yeah. showing what you're going through, but also showing you, mm. showing that you're a person, showing that you're a, a human being somewhere that's mm. having having wins, having losses, uh, trying I think the things. losses are the big thing as well because people always yeah. see social media as like the perfection and stuff like that. But I, I think social media is it's been out there for enough time now that people don't actually believe that. They don't believe what they see on social media. They want to see failures. And but the failure doesn't always have to necessarily be um, that this project broke and I now mm. have to throw it away. Sometimes mm. you show the the ugly part. Like I did a post today as, a, as an example um, that 
my knives look ugly as hell before mm. they then suddenly they don't. Yeah, you know they're yeah. they're all rough. They're bandsaw cut edges and on the liners mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Then the next time you see them, there'll be nice polished scales on there and everything. But it's okay mm-hmm. to show the rough part because that's yeah. part of the journey. Mm-hmm. Do you follow so, um, Jeff Fader on Instagram? The name sounds familiar. He's uh, well, he um, is one of the hosts on Knife Talk um, podcast, but uh, he always shows. Um, he does kitchen knives and stuff like that with filed spine work. So when he glues everything up, he has like this black epoxy absolutely everywhere. And he always shows that right yeah. in, in one story. And then he shows the finished product after he's ground it all away afterwards. And it's yeah. just, it's fantastic to see that this looks absolutely terrible until yeah. you put some work into it. And then it's, it's, uh, it just shines. It's um, as, as somebody who used to do the career that I used to do and why we're doing this show now, I see other people's posts on Instagram all the time and I'll sometimes go and look at their profiles and I, I just I just think sometimes like you're not standing out hmm. and your work's great. It's yeah. lovely. It's clearly, there's clearly skill and talent there, but you're in it like in your world, it's cool. You're doing this thing. You're, you're passionate about it. You feel it. You feel the passion. You hmm. feel the interest. But then you release it into the world and when I'm sitting there just scrolling through Instagram, you're Mm. up against thousands of other people that are doing the same sort of thing. Mm. And so why aren't you standing out? Why do some people, why do they stand out? Um, Mm. So try something new, try something daring, try something exciting, change the way you photograph things, uh, show you. Because you can't, no, there's, there aren't a million of you out there. Mm-hmm. So you know, get get that get that pretty smile out there and just <laughs> show them the the happy days. You know, mm. yeah, um, it's difficult because you see all these posts of like, well, you see a post that's doing really really well. It has hundreds of likes, um, and the person might only have hundreds of followers. So you think this person is doing pretty well for themselves. So I'm going to do the exact same thing. You take yeah. pictures just like that. You get five po- or five likes or something like that because people have already seen something like that so they just it's just white noise then after a while yeah and our brains our brains aren't the best memory machines so a lot of Mm. the time you will see a new post that looks so much like somebody else's post that you think it's the same one you're like ah instagram's glitching again and showing me things (laughs) um it happens yeah it really does so it's especially in um Chef knives are a really good example of that because chef knives, for reasons of practicality, have to be certain profiles. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it's not a very useful chef knife. And so mm-hmm. when you see somebody photograph a chef knife at a 45-degree angle from top left to bottom right on the screen, yep. even though the handles would be different and the profiles would be slightly different and things like that, if it was a chef knife against a dark background top left to bottom right, Mm-hmm. Your brain's just going to blend them all together. Yeah, and so it's it starts. Yeah, you've got you've got to stand out, and I I, I do mm. want to stop and shake people sometimes because mm. they I see they're doing awesome work. Like they've clearly mm. got got it, but they just need yeah. to show everybody. And it, it comes down to what we we're talking about with like advertising yourself. You've got to sh- mm. explain to people and educate to people why your stuff is different. Because yeah. you can't leave it in their hands to assume because they're just seeing you against everyone else. You need to actually yeah. show it to them. Hmm. There's a guy that's doing a really awesome thing at the moment. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. 
his heat treats are so good, he can put his knife in a hydraulic press and force it through steel rod and it wow. just pops the rod apart. <laughs> That's cool. Wild. And it's so different to what anybody else does. And because mm. of that, like in the space of about three seconds of viewing, you go, that guy makes tough knives. Mm. So if I'm looking for a knife that is going to hold up to some abuse, mm. I'm buying with I'm him. I'm going to him. Yeah. Yeah. Like nothing's, nobody else is doing anything like that. But uh, mm-hmm. you can bet your pretty butt that within six months, there's going to be hundreds of posts like that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. if people can actually make the knife. If they can that. do it. Yeah. 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 But if you, you get that pre hardened bars of powder steel and you just, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's fine. It's easy to do. Yeah. But this guy does it the hard way, the, the proper way. And yeah, mm-hmm. he's using like um, CPM3V or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So right. stand out. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult to do, but it's, I mean, there's only so many things or so many tips you can give to stand out because if it's something that you're thinking of, you probably want to use it for yourself anyway, <laughs> so that yeah. you can stand out. Well, but, um, I, I've, I've mentioned, we've, we've mentioned Kyle a lot and I've mentioned mm-hmm. Niels a lot. Um, their work is phenomenal. It is mm-hmm. objectively phenomenal, but mm-hmm. they themselves stand out. Yeah. Yeah. Their Even characters. just their personalities. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you, you recognize them. You start recognizing their faces. And like mm-hmm. Niels is a joy to listen to. I could le- listen to that man oh, read yeah. from a phone book. Yeah. Like literally, he's, his voice is just that great. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. And Kyle, his energy and enthusiasm mm-hmm. is, is it's contagious. contagious. Yeah. I just watch his videos and I'm like, man, it makes me want to just get out and make something. This mm-hmm. guy's just firing me up. And it's mm-hmm. that sort of thing that it makes you get noticed and then I, I know this is roundabout but this is this is how you get to charge more because it's not just going to be your your personality it's not just going to be standing out it's going to be pushing yourself so that people have a reason to follow you have a reason to pay mm. you more attention um yeah. so how what you're doing how you're pushing yourself and how you're presenting it are all going to sort of meld together and you're going to get more desirable as a maker, as an artisan. And your stuff will just naturally incur a higher cost because Mm. it's more in demand and it's had more work and more expertise got into it. Um, Have you ever heard the famous anecdote about um, Pablo Picasso and the napkin? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he was at a bar and a woman said, you're Pablo Picasso. And he goes, yes. And she slid a napkin across to him and says, could you draw a doodle on it for me? And he Mm -hmm. did the doodle on there and he slid it back and said, that'll be $500. Mm -hmm. And she goes, it took you like five seconds to do it. He goes, no, it didn't take me five seconds to do it. It took Mm -hmm. me 40 years and five seconds to do. Yeah. That's what they're paying for. They're paying for the experience, not just the time it took. Yeah, but it's not just the experience. It's the it's the the fact that like Carl Royer took a long time to make that sword, mm. and there's only one of it. Mm. But for people to have noticed that he took a long time, and that mm. there is only one, that's what creates the value. Yeah, he didn't just post the final picture. He posted all of the uh, the progress pictures, and he talked about the progress pictures, and yeah. made sure that you fell in love with it as he was falling in love with it. 
Yeah, I spent the same amount of time working on my Viking sword and I sold hmm. mine for um, 4% of what he sold his for. <laughs> so there you go. It's not yeah. just the time you put into it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have one more question here from right. myself. Um, I did get some questions like, for people to ask themselves before starting a business. So they're not necessarily ones that we can answer on the podcast because we can, they're basically ones that you have to ask yourself. But the yeah. one that we might be able to uh, to answer is one that I've we've talked about a little bit here um, because you always mention not to take custom orders and commissions yeah, um, because they burn you out and stuff like that. Um, I really struggle with that because it is the guaranteed income, which I said um, earlier. And I was wondering if um, commissions are something that you just kind of have to pay your dues with when you're starting out because it is, it's basically a way to get your name out there while getting a little bit of income. Um, before we moved down Sturgeon Falls here, I had, um, I had a, co- a commission for a farm knife. Um, I was actually talking to Sam about it. He was helping me because it was my first time doing a, a pinned handle. I got uh, through Tang, um, riveted on. Um, and so he was helping me out with that. But it was like an 11 inch with a saw back, which was my first time doing ever doing a saw back. It was a larger Bowie knife. So that's why I was asking Sam about it. I think it. I remember first that knife. You wrote into the Forgecast about it. Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, and Ironwood Handle. It was my first time doing a through handle and the first time doing a D guard. And getting that commission for something like that, I wouldn't have made something like that on my own time because I didn't want to um, use the resources for something that someone's not necessarily going to buy. Um, I didn't want to take all this time if it's not going to work, but if I'm getting paid for it, even if I don't get a profit, my expenses are still being paid for. And so is it not, um, a good way to kind of try new things, even if it doesn't work, you could kind of like charge, um, double what your expenses would be if you get it right the first time half of that's going to the expensive half of it's going to profit if it takes you twice two times to do it then uh you're still paid for there um is it something you have to just pay your dues for or uh is it something that you would say don't do it from the very beginning yeah i'm i'm gonna add a caveat um i don't do it and i don't um there are some people that thrive on commissions and more power to them. I mean, it's great. What you've pointed out is is very valid and for some people is fine. And in the early days, it, it's a balance that you have to find. You, mm. There are absolutely benefits to taking commissions when you first start out because not only does it, it gives you projects that get your name out there, mm. it gets your work guaranteed into people's hands who will then go on and talk about you, um, hopefully in a positive Mm. way. Um, But more importantly, it will, um, like you said, you would never have made that. It puts projects on your work table that will cause you to learn things and advance in ways that out of necessity Mm -hmm. that you never would have done yourself. And Mm -hmm. so, yes, there is absolutely a certain amount of paying your dues when you first start out taking commissions and it, it is very easy to get caught up in the excitement of that guaranteed money. It's like, Oh my God, people want my stuff. Oh, mm-hmm. this is so amazing. Um, but, um, a balance, if you're going to go down that road, a balance has to be struck because mm. if you're doing it based on, Oh my God, I need the money. I need the recognition. I need, I need it for all the, these things. Mm-hmm. 
it's going to be easy to take on too much. And you're going to be stuck with a two-year wait list in the end, and you're not going to want to get through it. Yeah, it's like, uh, do I just have one bit of cake? Oh, it's a really good cake. I'm going to have five <laughs> bits of cake, and then you've got a yeah. tummy ache afterwards. It's kind of like that sort of thing. It's like it's really good to have that guaranteed money. It's really good mm. to have all of that. But wouldn't you rather you have people – uh, you'd be making what you want to make and you have the desire there amongst people to buy it. Mm. Yeah. Because you can put the same amount of work in that you would making commissions, mm. uh, finishing those projects. You could put that work towards your marketing and getting mm. your products that you have designed and you have made out there yeah. uh, and getting them into hands of people, doing the footwork um, mm. going to shows, going to market stalls, things like that, and possibly get the same result mm. uh, for the same amount of work, except you've stayed pure, so to speak. Yeah. Um, however, that being said, like I'm biased about commissions because they don't fit with me. Um, mm. I am an incredibly antisocial person. I mm. don't like interacting with other people at all and commissions force you to do that quite a bit. Yeah. So yeah. it's very much not for me and, and having them um, waiting for you to finish work, they may as well be in the room with you breathing down your neck <laughs> as far as people like me are concerned. But then other people absolutely thrive off of it. They love yeah. being needed by by people love mm. having people uh, having their work so in demand that they've got this pile up of people waiting mm. for things yeah. um and if if that feeds your batteries go for it uh mm. but if you've suspected all that it drains your batteries spend that energy elsewhere mm. um if you because i mean obviously the mindset is commissions it's guaranteed money if i'm taking them yeah which you sort of look at that in the inverse and another way of describing that is if I don't take commissions, how will I get customers? How will I get money? Mm -hmm. So rather than thinking it like that, turn that into a genuine question. All right, what am I going to do? If I, mm -hmm. if I want to make the choice to not take commissions, what do I have to do to get the customers to be able to make up that deficit? Mm. Um, Rather than so, thinking of it like, oh, how do I get money? You got to think, okay, how am I going to get money? Yeah, you got to change and, the intonation in your mind. And, and a lot of people kind of think, well, like oh, I tried this thing and it didn't work, so clearly this isn't going to be mm. a viable thing. Try lots of different things. It's sort of yeah. um, cast a really wide net and then mm. refine. When I first started, I was making everything. I was making knives, wall hooks, S-hooks, jewelry, um, hair pins, mm. everything. And I would go to markets and I would see what sold. Yeah. And the stuff that sold, I kept. And the stuff that didn't, I got rid of, stopped making that. Mm. And I started making variants of the stuff that did sell. Hmm. And uh, it refined and refined and refined. And now I make almost exclusively pocket knives. Hmm. And yeah. I make a full-time living off that. Mm. So how would you gauge how, like if something was selling at a market? Because I've found like sometimes um, I'll go to a market and I'll sell out of steak flippers. And so that week I'll make like 10 more steak flippers and then I'll be stuck with those 10 steak flippers for another six months because no one's yep. buying them. <laughs> how do you gauge what's actually a good seller? Um, I'm assuming you can't just be there for a week. You have to basically be there for a whole season to see what's actually going to be selling. 
Yeah, keep a record of data. Um, data will work in cycles and you really need to keep a record of what sold, what month it sold in, mm. what um, what percentage off it was if you were running a sale mm. at the time because different sales. I actually have more success with 15% off sales than I do with 20% off sales. Hmm. I would not have ever assumed that if I didn't maintain track <laughs> of my sales and the data yeah. that goes with them because you would assume a bigger sale would lead to more money. Nope. Yeah. Smaller sale every time, Weird. 15% off. That's so strange. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and it's a big difference, like really? a noticeable difference. Yeah. With the same products, same time of year. Yeah. So hmm. you can't just make an assumption that, oh, this isn't selling. You got to find out when isn't it selling. Yeah. yeah. Just as like, when is it selling? Hmm. Um, like one thing that I found was uh, I never sold steak flippers. Hmm. And so I was about to remove them from my market stalls and I sold, uh, I think it was like seven in a day. Hmm like the weekend before I was going to just can them. <laughs> and I was obsessed with finding out why. Yeah. Why did they suddenly sell? You know what it was? A cruise ship had come in. Oh. There weren't up until then, there'd, there'd been no cruise ships. And then all <laughs> of a sudden there was this cruise ship there in the port of Brisbane because I was living in Brisbane at the time. Right. Um, and coincidentally i did a market while all of the tourists were off on the mm. cruise ship and they walked into walking around brisbane and there's this street market in the middle of brisbane and mm. i sold out because it's like oh my god handmade steak flipper how novel <laughs> <laughs> and then they piled back into their boat and fucked off back yeah. to where they where wherever they came from um wow. but that sort of thing is like you can be strategic with that sort of thing. I mean, yeah. they certainly do. Like I went to Vanuatu for my honeymoon mm -hmm. and as soon as you get off the ship, uh, there's market stalls there because mm. they know ship turns up, tourists. And I'm like, yeah. of course, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, there are gone, Tourists are going to come in waves based mm. off the infrastructure that moves tourism around. Yeah. Um, so there are factors that are even ones that you wouldn't normally think of that happen. So it's only by really tracking the data of your sales hmm. that, you know, the, the where's and why for's and when's of your sales that you're actually going to be able to form um, these patterns and see what these patterns are. Hmm. Um, like I never sell jewelry before Christmas. Hmm. In that Christmas gift rush, people don't want to buy jewelry, handmade jewelry from me. I don't know what it is. But during the rest of the year, I just I drop jewelry, it disappears within days. Wow. But if, if it's the lead up to Christmas, nope. So strange. It but seems thing so is, backwards. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, like for a long the longest time I would try and work out why. And then yeah. after a while, when you've got enough data, when you've got a couple of years worth of that data, you don't yeah. even bother asking why because no. you realize that it cycles every year. Yeah. So I now know when to run what type of sale. I know when hmm. to push what type of product, et cetera, right. et cetera. I don't use any of that data anymore because I eventually settled into my niche of uh, having a demand for what I make 
and yeah. I've got my little window and I sit in that window and I'm comfortable. I'm happy with what I mm-hmm. make and I've got people wanting it. But yeah. it took three, yeah. four years of building that data, analyzing that data to whittle it down to that. And that mm-hmm. is paying your dues. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, if for some reason people just stop buying pocket knives, if they become illegal worldwide, you have all that data that you can go back and say, okay, what am I going to do now? Yeah, and in the process of getting to that point, I've learned such a broad skill set that I could move mm-hmm. into a million different products. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, people don't want to pay the, pay that much attention. They want to just keep sort of throwing the bones and seeing where they land. It's sort yeah. of, it's wild how random people are with the stuff that they make. It's just, mm-hmm. I felt like making this. If people don't buy it, oh, well, that's fine if it's yeah. a hobby. It's perfectly mm-hmm. fine. Just enjoy yourself. But if you're trying to yeah. make your living off it, you have to be more strategic than that. As soon as you start collecting data, though, it's, it's oh, I'm doing statistics. This is math. I don't want to go back to school, so I'm not going to do this. Yeah, because I used to do a lot of software development, I made it easy for myself and I actually wrote a program that I can hmm. put the data into and it nice. makes the makes it identifies the patterns for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> so if you know even basic coding, you know, have a play with yeah. that because... Um, hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it it helps, but you can just do it with literally a you know, bit of graph paper and a and a, a yeah. record keeping book. Toss yeah. it into Excel or something like that. Yeah, that's right. It's it's yeah. it's really easy. You will see spikes in times of the year that you would not expect. Don't hmm. question it. Don't try and figure out why. Just make a note of it and say, okay, this uh, you know between May and September, hairpins. Just sell hmm. them. And so you make the stock and have them at that time and next Mm. year will come around and you will sell a lot of hairpins. Mm. Do you find, I don't know what um, the tax season is like over in Australia, but do you find like when the tax refund comes in, you get an influx of sales? Actually, not really. Um, Mm. You would think, you'd think that you would, but I think there, I I don't think I'm a big enough fish for people to... Right. Be like, oh, I can't wait for my tax refund so I can get a Valhalla <laughs> Ironworks knife. I don't right. think I'm I'm near enough that popular yet. Mm. I'm working on it, but yeah, you know, ten thousand <laughs> followers is nothing to sneeze at. But it's yeah, oh, absolutely. But it's nothing on the big big fish out there. Absolutely right. nothing on them. So mm. yeah, I think uh, one day, but not until then. It's more of a thing that people just uh, save a little bit for. Right. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this has been fantastic. I have no idea what I'm doing now. <laughs> but, uh, I, oh, well, good. I've left you with more questions than you came in with. <laughs> yeah, like watch out for next week for sure. <laughs> but uh, no, this is, it's been absolutely fascinating. And uh, I do have some questions. I didn't know if you wanted me to, just to go through these uh, questions to ask yourself before starting a business, just yeah, in case there why are. Why not? some listeners who are um, thinking of making the plunge in the next couple of weeks. That's my thing. So let's go right back to the beginning and give a little more of my situation is I'm currently teaching through the summer, your winter, my summer. Um, and that comes to an end at the end of August. So beginning of September, I'm basically jobless. Um, so my thought is, do I start beginning of September going full-time or do I look for a full-time job um, that might take me out 40, 50 hours a week and not give me enough time to work in the workshop. The other thing is I'm renting my workshop. It's not on my property. So it's another overhead there. So if I only have one day a week in the workshop, is that going to be enough as a hobby to pay for the workshop itself? Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's where I'm sitting now. But, um, 
if anyone else is is out there um these are just a couple of questions that uh that people wanted to or people they, they have their businesses already established and these are some questions that they wish they had answered or been asked um before before they started so uh my sister-in-law chiffon she's a uh, knitter she makes all sorts of knitwear and one thing that she wish wish she should have asked is what are all the hidden costs that you don't necessarily think of so for her she was thinking okay i need wool i need knitting needles and i need time on top of that she uh eventually found out that there's like price tags for markets there's a price of markets for paying for your table there um, tissue paper and bags for packaging, custom tags to sew onto the knitwear itself. So you basically as your touch mark. Um, so uh, what are the hidden costs and the money that you're bringing in? Is that just being frittered away to those hidden costs and you don't see any of it? Or are you actually paying yourself enough? Um, so that's, uh, yeah, I don't know if you have anything to say about that in the knife world. Because I know there's tons and tons of costs that we might not think of. It's not just the wool. Where it's not just for us, like the steel and the handle material. There's all the consumables as well. Belts and, and uh, sandpaper and yeah. 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 It's all just operation costs, which you should have figured out during the time yes. where you were gainfully employed elsewhere and yeah. working out what your overheads were. Like you for really sure. need to analyze the nuts and bolts of it. Um, mm -hmm. if you're going to be serious about it. But yeah. some of them will still catch you by surprise. Yes. Um, one thing I will say is um, windfalls happen. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't notice them as much when you have a normal job. Mm. It's like, oh, cool, a little bit extra money. Um, it's just going to happen sometimes, uh, and yeah. it's just part of life. Sometimes you're yeah. lucky, just just like sometimes, you know, bills come that were unexpected. Mm. Yeah. Um, when the windfalls happen and you are working for yourself, that's a big moment, mm. and you need to be very calm when that happens, mm. uh, and it's a really good time to. Re just dump it all on restocking consumables. Yeah. Um, Don't take a five-week vacation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, because sometimes that windfall might be enough to get you consumables for a year. Yeah. Because they're all little things that tend to add up. Mm. So, yeah. 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 Uh, for my brother, actually, um, uh, these two are married together, Siobhan and my brother James. Uh, he's a uh, full-time landscaper. Um, so not necessarily a maker of things that you can hold, but he's uh, a maker of things that you can sit out on your garden and your patio and stuff like that. Um, my neighbor's a landscaper. Oh, yeah. Um, do you mind if I shout these guys out? Yeah, go for yeah, it. Okay, so my brother is uh, from the ground up landscape um, with underscores between every word on Instagram. My sister-in-law's mom is warm woolies on uh on Instagram, but anyway, um, so my brother uh, ran into the uh, nasty, nasty government after his first year of actually being on his own, and he realized after um, at the end of the year that it's not only the HST that you have to pay; it's also the income tax that you have to pay, and all this stuff. So um, he had wished uh, someone had asked him, "Do you actually know how much you need to pay to the government?" Because at the end of the year, you don't want to pay eight grand, nine grand, ten grand to the government, which is one hundred percent of your profits. Yeah, it's uh, not the nicest thing to have to do. So I don't know. Again, like this is going to be different for every single country because I don't know what the tax. Thing it's is why like. I, I've, I've had people comment on it before that I never comment on it um, in like my ebook and things like that. And it's mm. because it, it changes country to country. It's um, yeah. and situation to situation. It's yeah. um, it's a very complex thing. All I can say is familiarize yourself with your requirements yeah and, yeah, and work sure. within them to the best of your abilities mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah. Sometimes you can you can find accountants at fairly reasonable prices, and you mm-hmm. only need to pay them once a year, and they will keep you together. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm finding someone to do your taxes as well. Like I used to do my taxes until I got the business, and then I was like, I'm just too terrified now. Like the government is scary when you hear that they could come and audit you at any point. I'm like, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. want that. Someone else can have that problem, <laughs> even though it'll still be coming down on me. I don't want to deal with. Um, and then the last uh, last guy here, Dave Edney at the Sunday Supper podcast on uh, on Instagram. He runs a farm and a, a farm market there and stuff like that. And uh, he has a bunch of just short questions um, that are all a little bit pessimistic, but not necessarily pessimistic, but realistic. Um, so he says, do you have it in you not to be great and to not succeed straight away? How many failures are you willing to endure before you pack it in or you self-implode? Are you willing to embrace the constant anxiety of trying to succeed and find growth? How do you crucify jealousy and stay in your own lane for the sake of your own sanity and growth? And are you okay to destroy the ideas that don't go anywhere and to start fresh? I can condense all of that down to one question. Go for it. What are you willing to endure to make this dream a reality? Mm. Yeah. Because you're going to have to endure a lot. Yeah. Sometimes, very rarely, you get lucky. Mm. Some people come out of the gate and hit it. Yeah. It just works. Mm. Um, I actually had that happen in a previous business venture in a past life long before I did this. Um, And it comes with its own share of problems. Mm. Um, And it's a discussion for a different time but Mm. more often than not the vast majority of times you you're going to have to make sacrifices you're Mm. going to have to fail Mm. you're going to have to get back up and dust yourself off so many times that you've forgotten what it's like to Mm. (laughs) to succeed yeah um but what's it worth to you it's as simple as that you have to figure out like are those sacrifices worth it I am not a good employee. Hmm. Let me just say that. I worked a, a, a corporate job for over a decade, like 12 years. And um, I do not, I, I'm not good at being managed. Hmm. I question people when they may, tell me that something needs to be done a certain way i try and optimize procedures that are already established and everyone's just <laughs> happy to just you know blindly follow and yeah. i i'm just not good at it and so mm. i instantly clash with authority figures i'm mm. also a natural born leader some people just walk into a room and if there is a group of people somebody needs to take charge i'm one of those people yeah. mm. and I, I, whether I'm good at it or not, it depends. <laughs> but I do it, and I'm not good at not being the person who's in charge. And right. so I had to work for myself. Yeah, I was miserable working mm. for somebody else. I, I, it, it was, it just felt like it was slowly killing me inside. Mm. And so that was kind of my option. It was either do this and endure all of that stuff that your friend just has listed. Mm. Or the alternative. And for me, there wasn't an alternative because I, I wasn't going back. Yeah. Couldn't do it. It's not it's I not, guess not an option for me, you know? Mm-hmm. 
it's something that you have to decide before you go full time. Like, are you absolutely miserable in your job? Like, so, so miserable that it's absolutely like detrimental to your mental health. And if, if not, like, if you think you could survive, like, it's not the greatest job, but you have this hobby that you enjoy and you have other hobbies that you enjoy as well, that like traveling, um, like you were saying, bushwalking and stuff like that. Are you willing to even give up those hobbies yeah. to go full time with your, with your blacksmith or whatever kind of business that might be? Because it yeah. sounds like you're going to have to do it seven days a week, or if you're scheduling rest six days a week, 10, 12 hour days. And uh, just, just to make it work, there's not going to be time to go out fishing, go bushwalking and go do whatever else you want to do, at least for the first little while while you're getting yourself established into a routine. At least at first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes you're going to have to go months without selling things. You're going to make yeah. a project that you've poured so much of your heart and soul into and you mm. love and you genuinely sit there thinking, I don't know if I can sell this. I love this so much. Mm-hmm. But you wrench your heart and you put it up for sale and nobody wants it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll just die inside mm. and you can't stand to look at it because of, of the pain that it brings. Yeah. Like you, you're going to just experience heartbreak like that constantly. Mm. You're going to experience fear that everything that you put out there is going to fail in some way and mm. you're going to have to endure the judgment of of your you know peers and friends sometimes and it's it's just it's part of it because mm. the alternative is listening to the man with the clipboard at the door and yeah. getting plugged back into a cubicle mm-hmm. and just living a quiet life of misery mm. until you retire <laughs> and then you can garden for a bit and then die yeah <laughs> Bit of a that's bleak outlook when you put it that way. <laughs> but that's what it is. That's mm. that's what life is. You you're born, you get stuck in school, which is just there to teach you how to be a good little office worker. That's mm-hmm. all school is, let's face it. Yeah. And then you finally get to go to college or university to learn the the school version of how to be a good little boy or girl for that field mm. and think inside this box only and not outside of it. And they'll slap you every time you think outside of it. And then you get a job and you get stuck in that job until you're 68. And then you finally retire and you got, then you can travel, but you're all your joints hurt and you're tired all the time <laughs> and you've got your lactose intolerance and you can't enjoy yourself properly. Mm. So, like, <laughs> I already have a lactose intolerance. I'm halfway there already. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you're in our generation, like, say goodbye to the notion of ever owning property out or out unless you were born yeah. into money like mm. even if you are living below the poverty line in a western country you are still richer than 90 percent of the planet mm-hmm. and you should be thankful for what you've got but instead yeah. you you know but we have you're not choice. comparing yourself to the other 10 percent. you're comparing yourself to the rest of the people around you Exactly. And the, the, the thing that you need to realize that the, the, the people who are running all of the, the, the companies that want you as the good little employee to, to mm. wash the dishes and press the buttons and things, they don't want you to know this, but you have a choice. Yeah. You can just say, you know what, I'm willing to cop the consequences of my actions and I'm going to try doing this on my own. Mm. You can do that. You just yeah. get to. Nobody's going to stop you except you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the realization comes down to the fact that 
every choice you make, whatever it is, comes mm. with consequences. Yeah. Staying a good little office monkey comes with consequences. Mm-hmm. Choosing to be stupid enough to start your own business as an artisan comes with consequences. Mm-hmm. And you just need to work out which choice is the one that has the consequences you're willing to cope with. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And eventually, in either of those, you'll either get completely comfortable and settled in on your career path and you'll mm-hmm. just forget that you ever had these crazy notions or you will become so recognizable in your field that you realize, hey, I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. I'm making my income. I'm supporting my family off this and people like what I do. Yeah. And it's only up from here. Mm-hmm. That's the end result of both those if you play your cards right. Um, but mm-hmm. you have to go through either misery, abject misery and, you know, staff meetings mm-hmm. or <laughs> morning stand-ups um, <laughs> and, and, and choosing what thing out of the vending machine you want. Or mm-hmm. you have to deal with, you know, fear of failure and, and rejection and uh, saying no to family and friends and mm. sacrifice of the things that you love for a time yeah. and a lot of hard work. Yeah. You will work harder working for yourself than you ever worked for working for somebody else. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's one thing that got love. me into blacksmithing is like as I as a teacher, I'm either standing up at a blackboard or I'm sitting down in my office. I was like, I need to do something with my hands. I can't like this is it was getting yeah, too much for me. I was gaining weight, I was getting depressed and anxious and uh I just needed to do something active. But not just like going for a run or something like that. I needed to make something. And I yeah. think there is something, I don't know what it is, something internal that just happens to you when you make something and when you see a finished product that you made with your hands and your blood, sweat, and tears. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, there's just something fantastic about that. It's one of those things you could describe it to somebody else as best you could, but they still wouldn't make it quite right. No. Not no. the way you could. And it'd be able no. to birth something into life from mm. nothing is just great yeah yeah it's a wondrous feeling mm-hmm. yeah so, so david yes the real the real question that this all comes down to is will you right. be joining in on the forge cast competition ah uh, that is the um to make uh, a hori hori yeah hori hori is the japanese trowel thing right yeah gardening well, i have knife. no idea i have absolutely zero idea because i have never seen one before <laughs> <laughs> But uh, uh, well, it's it's a it's like a tactical trowel, basically. A um, tactical trowel. <laughs> if, you, if you if you give it a Google, um, it's H O R I, H O R I, twice. <laughs> hurry, hurry. <laughs> Times two. And um, yeah, the competition is to make the best hurry, hurry, the coolest hurry, hurry. Um, so, what makes it cool? It's up to you. Maybe it's the final design. Maybe it's where it came from. Maybe you decide to forge it entirely out of a giant ball bearing, and that's what makes it cool. Um, oh, I have a couple of those. I'll, I might, might try yeah, to do that. it'd be it'd be yeah. quite a feat if you did it that. But <laughs> we're going to be judging it on cool factor, not necessarily the cleanest or the you know fanciest or anything. It's cool factor. So mm. um, the prize that you will get a prize as the winner, um, a special prize in the mail from Ryan at Otway Fiddleback. He's going to help us pick uh, the coolest one as well because mm. uh, you know he's he likes his gardening implements. Mm. 
Is he going to come on the show and help you pick that? Because that would be I fantastic. don't know. Maybe. We'll see. See if he yeah. wants to. See if he's got the time to. He's a busy man. Yeah. Yeah. And sanding all that luscious wood. Mm. But, um, yeah. So join in on that. If you're going to compete, use the hashtag ForgeCast competition and show us your hurry hurries. I know a few people have already started, so I'm very excited mm. to see where it goes. Um, if you want to send a question into the ForgeCast, either slide into our DMs on Facebook or Instagram under the ForgeCast or send an email to ask.forgecast at gmail.com. And, David, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Big Forge Blacksmithing. Uh, I have a website as well, BigForgeBlacksmithing.com. Uh, I think that's it. I'm not on the cesspool of TikTok or Twitter or anything <laughs> like that, so... Um, One thing I will yeah, point out is um, David's uh, dog, Little Fudge, has been unwell lately. And so he's been doing some, he's been pumping out some gorgeous stuff to sell just to raise money for vet bills for Little Fudge. So if you're feeling like you you want to buy some cool stuff or maybe you've got a gift needed for a birthday coming up or something like that, mm-hmm. um, check check out what he's got because um, I'm I'm all about the dogs. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, uh, we can help it's all about selling fudge. the story, right? So a little fudge is a four-year-old Australian Shepherd and Entel Butcher Mountain Dog uh, mix. Um, she stands. You th- you hear that she's a mountain dog. Apparently, the Swiss where the Entel Butcher is the smallest mountain dog, so she's not hmm. uh, not too big. She's smaller than uh, than a golden retriever or labyrinth. She's about fifty pounds, fifty-five pounds. Um, she has pancreatitis, or she had. She's on the mend now, which is good. The medication seems to be working. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, uh, I had a, a day of making blacksmith knives. I was a camp knife and a few Damascus pendants for sale. So yeah, Excellent. come on over and we'll, we'll get you sorted away. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, if people are looking for me, I go by Valhalla Ironworks. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram, YouTube, uh, Redbubble. I am on TikTok. I don't allow commenting though, so there's not much point following me. <laughs> um, haven't been booted off yet, although they've sent me many <laughs> warnings. Well, many warnings. Um, I'm also on Patreon, and I will say, if you did enjoy this sort of content, the top two tiers of my Patreon, you basically get me as a personal business uh, consultant for mm. uh, any and all of your business questions, and I'll even do full tutorial videos on very advanced topics, um, mm. real deep dive stuff. To uh, to get your business popping, so and Alex maybe. also has an ebook all about starting a business. So mm. I do have that, but uh, I lost it, which is why I'm I'm talking to Alex. Today. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna after the show. I'm gonna email him a fresh copy so that he's got it again. <laughs> so um, it's a lot of it's in there. If you're thinking of mm. starting a, a business, it's it's actually on sale now. The ebook. So mm. Mm. There you go. go to nissa-valhalla.com and. Uh, or the links in my my Instagram bio anyway. So pick up a copy, full of full of juicy goodness. Do it. It's it's it's, it's long as well. It's not like a little. Okay, you just start your business. Yeah, it's not Here's a pamphlet. One, one page of how you do it. It's like there's a a big book of how you do it. So it's yeah, so uh, a bit a bit of light reading before bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks for coming on the show, David. Hopefully, this was not too intimidating. This was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for all of your wisdom. And uh, thank you to Sam, who's not with us today. Um, But uh, you guys hold an absolutely amazing podcast here, helping so many people in the community and uh, helping people like me.
make a decision as to whether or not to uh, to go full time, or at least educating us so that we don't make a poor decision. Yeah, <laughs> mm. uh, it's it's um, you've got uh, the time time accounting down, which can't help. But uh, no, oh, it's it's absolutely so super super stressful. But uh, yeah, this has been super helpful. Yeah, but uh, you know where to find me if you need help. Absolutely. I'll be there. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this extra long episode, and uh, <laughs> we'll catch you. Big Fudge should be back next week, um, I'm pretty sure. So we'll, uh, we'll catch you then. Awesome. See you guys. See you Oh! <laughs>